Hello and welcome to Planet Critical, the podcast for a world in crisis. My name is Rachel Donald. I'm a lecturer, a climate corruption reporter and your host. Every week I interview experts who are battling to save our planet. My guests are scientists, politicians, academics, journalists and activists. They explain the complexities of the energy, economic and political crises that we face today, revealing what's really going on and what they think needs to be done. This is a critical time for our planet. It demands critical thinking. Go to planetcritical.com to learn more and subscribe. I've got a special episode of Planet Critical for you all today. In July, I recorded a roundtable with some of my former guests. The idea was an interdisciplinary assessment of the climate crisis and what to do about it. There were six fascinating presentations by six amazing thinkers, and each presentation was followed by a round of questions. You can listen to the audio of the roundtable right here, right now, or you can go to YouTube to watch it in full. Here's what's coming up in today's episode. Kerry King, research scientist and assistant director at the University of Texas's Energy Institute, presents Maximum Power Principle in Biology and Economics. Henrik Nordberg, physics professor and renewable energy and environmental technology program director at the Eastern Switzerland University of Applied Sciences, presents Global Climate Compensation. Physicist Yi Tao presents Mir and Warming Mitigation. Steve Keen, economist and academic, presents Carbon Credit Currency. Chris Cook, Senior Research Fellow at the Institute for Security and Resilience Studies at University College London, presents Economy 3.0, Networked Societies and Energy Standard. And finally, Sally Gurner, Director of Edinburgh University's Planetary Health Lab, presents Oligarchy and Energy Systems Principles. I hope you all enjoy the episode. If you do, please share it far and wide. If you're loving the show, support Planet Critical with a paid subscription at planetcritical.com or on Patreon. By signing up, you'll also get access to the weekly article I write inspired by each interview. Thank you to everyone who has signed up and is supporting the project. I'm a vehement believer in ad-free and open access content, so Planet Critical wouldn't exist without the direct support of the amazing community. Thank you so much to all of you who keep the project going every week. All right, everyone, thank you very much for joining me for the very first Planet Critical Roundtable. It's such a pleasure to have you all here. We are strapped in for a long session. This is an interdisciplinary panel, so the idea is to troubleshoot one another's ideas, uh, to add extra layers of knowledge, um, to call out what you think would be feasible or unfeasible, uh, because the idea is to find solutions that are implementable for the polycrisis that we find ourselves in today. Thank you all for joining. I'm going to hand over the conch now to Kerry, who is our first panelist. Thank you, Kerry. All right. Thanks, everyone. Uh, my name is Kerry Keen. I am a research scientist and assistant director at the Energy Institute at the University of Texas at Austin, and I study energy and economy in interactions. And uh, highlighted here is there's a book that came out uh, about two years ago now uh, called The Economic Superorganism. And a lot of the ideas I express here are expressed in the book, but perhaps with a few others. So I'm here to talk about the Jevons paradox or what's often called the backfire effect. So this is the idea that increased energy efficiency levels uh, actually lead to more growth and consumption say, of energy uh, rather than less at the large scale. So um, this is essentially a 150 year old idea uh, originated uh, named after William Stanley Jevons, British economist. And the idea was brought up in his book, The Coal Question, 1866. So in, his, in The Coal Question, he states it's a holy confusion of ideas to suppose that the economical use of fuel is equivalent to a diminished consumption 
The very contrary is the truth. So that's a summary of the quote unquote paradox. It goes on to say, as a rule, new modes of economy will lead to an increase of consumption. It means kind of overall at the system level. So we'll go into that. So one of his it's kind of main example that he goes over in the book is about uh, coal use and early industrialization in England. So he says, if the quantity of coal used in a blast furnace, for example, be diminished in comparison with the yield. So if you use less coal to make iron, a unit of iron, then the profits of the trade will increase. New capital will be attracted. Price of pig iron will fall, but the demand for it will increase. And eventually the greater number of furnaces will more than make up for the diminished consumption of each. So the key here is essentially this last bit. And this is what sort of gets people hung up on buying into this idea. So eventually the greater number of furnaces will more than make up for the diminished consumption of each. So it's not that, it's not a set of a sinner's paribus kind of situation. It's that you accumulate more things over time and then accumulating more things over time uh, leads to more total consumption for the total system or total economy. So you can generalize this. So if the quantity of energy in some kind of widget, now say at the micro scale, right? The individual widget, um, gets, if you make that more energy efficient, then the price of the service from that widget will go down and people will be able to afford more widgets and will make more widgets. And then the sum of all the widgets at the macro scale or the entire economy will more than make up for the diminished consumption of each individual widget because you've accumulated more. So that's the general idea at the micro scale. It seems like you're saving energy, but the larger you expand your boundary, uh, you're able to accumulate investment, um, and into more capital. So. The following have been true since industrialization uh, to the current times that the global economy includes more efficient processes. We invest in more efficient things, not less efficient things in general, and as, as a general rule. And the economy has increased its rate of energy consumption, has increased its size in terms of machines and, and population. So to understand this, you kind of have to have this micro to macro scale perspective. And one way to understand macro and micro scale perspectives or system perspectives. Let's just think about size and the structure of something. Um, what is the system size and what is the structure? One way to think about these two ideas is to think about three other ideas, which is matter, inf information, and energy. So uh, matter is essentially how much is there, how much stuff that you have. Information is roughly how do you do it or how is the matter arranged. And energy is roughly how much effort does it take or how much does it cost to arrange the matter in a particular way? Uh, these are, can be thought of as similar ideas uh, at some core level, but these are three useful ideas to keep separately. So energy is essentially, a, in this sense, sort of a cost metric. So ever since the 1930s in the biological realm, uh, Max Kleiber sort of established this relationship between metabolism B on the left of this equation and mass uh, on the right of this equation in the, or it's a, a proportionality, uh, for animals. And you notice that these were not linear, linearly related. They're related by this exponent three quarter power. So if you have 10 times mass, uh, of an animal or an animal that's 10 times larger, it does not consume 10 times more energy as for its metabolism consumes, uh, or its basal metabolism 10 to three quarter power or about 5.6 times more energy. And people have tried to understand the basis of this sublinear scaling, uh, in some sense ever since. And there's a lot of work done in the 1990s and 2000s since, uh, to understand this. The interesting thing is that this also holds for social insects or what 
what uh, some people would call ultra-social insects like ants and termites. So here's ants, and if you calculate the mass of ants as well as the mass of their fungus, if they're fungus farming ants, which are also on this list, uh, which are farming ants, then you also have this sublinear scaling relationship. If you have 10 times more ants and fungus, uh, you don't have 10 times more metabolism, you have less than 10 times more metabolism. So a lot of people look at these and they think, well, that's more efficient, but we're going to get into whether this is a conscious choice of becoming more efficient. Uh, from If we go even sort of further down to the single cell level, you might have different kinds of relationships. So I'm just going to highlight how size seems to matter here. So if you're really small, like a bacteria, that's just a single cell prokaryote, then they have superlinear scaling. So this exponent of mass, if they have 10 times more massive bacteria, it consumes even more than 10 times uh, the energy as the smaller bacteria. If you get a little bit larger, but still a single cell, so protist, um, which is a eukaryonic cell, so these are things like amoebas or paramecium, then you'll have roughly a linear relationship. 10 times bigger amoeba roughly consumes 10 times more uh, energy. And then we get to larger multi-cell organisms like animals. And this is the situation I already summarized as a sublinear scale. So size seems to matter in terms of what this uh, scaling relationship is between size and energy, at least for uh, animals. And so this is a summary of that. And we could think, well, if we go from this size uh, relationship in some way, you might consider this increasing coordination of the parts, which is to say, uh, once you add multiple cells together, then they have some, some type of coordination. Some cells do one job, some cells do another. If you accumulate more and more ants, some ants are doing a particular job at any particular time or some sort of task, and some ants are performing another type of task. They're not all performing any one of the tasks uh, at any one time. They become specialized, if you will, in some sense. So... This also happens in the economy. And so this is part of the question to ask if we have specialized roles in our human economy, how much of this is driven by just uh, growth in general or some sort of uh, necessity for being larger. You could also ask if this means that there's decreased agency of each part. They have less free will, if you will, or less choice about what they're doing. So this is the, the catch. So, um, so the summary, some of you might uh, have, have read and other things. Uh, is that the global, global economy has similar types of patterns, and that's why we might call it a super organism. Some people do. Uh, the economy takes in materials just like animals, uses them to grow, and uses them to organize itself. Uh, and this is a data on the right side for global primary energy versus GDP as a proxy for size. And uh, from 1900 to 1970, it's roughly a one to one relationship, like an amoeba, you might say, uh, 10 times more GDP. We, consume 10 times more uh, energy consumption or global power. And then after the 1970s, it changed into this sublinear scaling relationship. So you might say, well, the economy became large enough like a multi-celled organism and more connected globally. And it ended up in this sublinear regime where uh, GDP may go up 3% a year and uh, energy consumption goes up 2% a year. So this two thirds factor. So again, biology and economic data seem to roughly be telling us the same thing in terms of the trajectory of growth as the economy or the global economy grows, similar to if an animal or an ultra-social insect society also grows. So we had this quote earlier from Jevons, and we're saying maybe it holds for animals and ant colonies and economies. So I'm just kind of substituting it in here just to be more generic. Uh, if you, if the quantity of energy used at the micro cell in a biological cell or a car or a building at the micro scale, 
uh, becomes more efficient, then new capital will be attracted in the cost of another cell, adding that to the animal or cost of adding another car to the economy or another building to the economy will fall. And eventually the greater size of the animal or size of the cities or size of the economies will more than make up at the macro scale for the diminished consumption of each individual item. So it's almost as if that's a requirement in order to grow at some level, um, you have to have more efficient uh, devices, not necessarily more efficient devices, but each device is going to have to consume less, uh, whether it's more efficient or not. Uh, and so this is just a restatement of what we've already said here. All right. So, uh, I had hinted at this, so this is, uh, to spur discussion, uh, how would you think of human agency and whether we have delusions of what we're in control of? It's not necessarily my area of expertise, but uh, I tend to think of it as this way. Uh, you know, how many degrees of freedom or options do we have when we have so many options of things to do within the economy? Uh, this can, where it becomes confusing as to what our restrictions actually are. So a one degree of freedom system in sort of that engineering sense is on the left, which is a bar pinned at the center and it rotates. It only has one degree of freedom because it only needs one dimension to describe its position, which is say the angle of the bar. If you put a pencil on the end of the bar, it can only draw a circle. So that's the only thing that can happen. The, the, the pencil can only be somewhere in a circle and that's a one dimensional uh, construct. So it has one degree of freedom. If you have two bars and the second bar on the right is connected to the end of the first bar, now you have a two degree of freedom system because there are two angles that are needed to describe where the pencil is. And now the pencil can fill up anywhere within this larger circle, a two-dimensional space. So now it's a two degree of freedom system and you need two pieces of information well to describe where the pencil is. So this is just a simple example of increasing degrees of freedom. And of course, today we have, uh, I'm not sure how to quantify the degrees of freedom uh, within the human economy. So individual free will then is kind of unclear on many levels. So to, so at, at, one philosophical level to survive, we, let's just say it's humans, it's biological creatures, uh, have to eat. So that's sort of not debatable, but we do have choices for food. So it's not like we don't have no choice, but some choices are restricted if we, if you want to survive. And so at a practical level, we think about designing machines and running the economy. We cannot create a perpetual motion device. Uh, of course, we had to understand that concept first. Um, so we're restricted by laws of physics or what we understand is the laws of physics. Uh, there's also choices affected by other agents or influence, right? By lobbying, advertising, and laws. So we're not like complete automatons, uh, but there are things that affect how we might operate as affected by other people like ourselves and laws that we try to understand that are in some sense not affected by ourselves, but we try to interpret them. So one way to think about this is Richard Adams, who was an anthropologist and then this uh, in a book in 1974, he discussed the idea of the control of the environment uh, as a link to the power that you might have in social relations, so human relations. So he says it, it is the actor's control of the environment that constitutes the base of social power. So summarize kind of what he means here. This is his diagram from his book. Uh, consider social entities A and B. This could be like countries. I just think, think of these as two different countries of the world. And they have some social relationships between the two. And they both can control the environment X to some degree. So he says, well, A and B have equal control over the environment, then neither necessarily has social power over the other. They're sort of social equals. Uh, control over the environment could be weapons, uh, warfare, could be extracting energy or natural resources or converting them from one form to another. It's kind of a real uh, high level uh, concept here. 
Um, so if A has more control over the environment than B, it can also have social power over B. So in a current context, we might think, okay, there is Russia that is A and it has some oil and gas resources and military power. And then there's Ukraine, which has less military construct. And there's Europe, who is historically dependent on oil and gas from Russia. And this creates this social conflict, uh, sets up the social relations to a large degree. Uh, we could think about this outside of geopolitics, uh, energy companies and consumers. There's a that's what they do is extract things from the environment and consumers we serve by definition as the group that consumes them. So we can think about these kinds of social relations. Uh, historically, one of the good examples, at least in the United States, and uh, not too far back in history, is that coal miners had control of the environment before there was a lot of automation uh, in the sense of going down into the mines and, and uh, extracting coal. And uh, in the late 1800s, U.S. coal miners went on strike two to three times more than workers in other industries, and they created uh, improved working conditions. And so this is from a book, uh, Timothy Mitchell, Carbon Democracy. Um, he says the strikes of the coal miners uh, became effective because of the flows of carbon that connected the chambers beneath the ground to every factory, office, home, or means of transportation. So if the coal miners didn't physically go down there, control the environment, and bring the coal out, then there were so many other uh, aspects of the economy that were going to be disrupted that the coal mine owners essentially had to uh, uh, give in to the coal miners' demands because there were so many other people dependent on them. So this is an example of, you know, essentially the effectiveness of strikes and, and uh, restricting, you know, affecting the control of the environment, a physical thing to have uh, to then translate to the social organization of the economy. So we'll go here now to the maximum power principle and how we essentially sort of do or don't make decisions, I guess. And so the maximum power principle uh, can probably be attributed originally to Alfred Lochte in the 1920s. I didn't exactly use the term, but then Howard Odom, an ecologist uh, in the 50s, 60s, and 70s that thought about this uh, concept much more. So uh, Odom's summary here is the maximum power principle says that the more lasting and hence more probably dynamic patterns of energy flow or power, including the patterns of living systems and civilizations tend to transform and restore the greatest amount of potential energy at the fastest possible rate. So in the sort of natural selection evolution context, organisms that survive via natural selection are those that follow the maximum power principle. This would be their, the, the, the hypothesis here, the pos positive idea, so that more resource consumption leads to more fitness and then more fitness leading to more reproduction and propagation of the genetic material. So this is the idea. Uh, he goes on to say, Howard Odom, when ecosystems and the systems of humanity are similarly diagrammed, the patterns of systems energy are found to be similar. So the scaling laws I showed earlier are one example of these similar types of patterns. Goes on in the middle of this uh, quote, say individual choices, uh, say by you and me in the economy, are a means for exploring alternatives so that humanity as a whole finds the patterns that maximize the system's energy flow. Uh, after that, at the end, most people are accustomed to thinking of human behavior as the cause of behavior of the larger systems. They have difficulty realizing that patterns of the system can draw from the individuals the behavior that helps the system track maximal power through competition of variant patterns for survival. So I'll bring that back up. But what he's saying is we think we make decisions at the micro level and then sum these decisions up and it affects what the macro level economy does. He's saying it's hard to understand, but what's likely happening or what tends to happen is there's some larger uh, constructs at the macro scale that essentially dictates 
uh, in aggregate, a pattern of behavior at the micro scale or what scientists might call downward causation. Uh, Karsten Hermann Palaf is an economist, philosopher in Germany, and he tacked onto this idea. So uh, he's saying here that the maximum uh, power principle is a principle of natural selection also operates for all extensions, such as in technology or whatever we might call technology in, in the economy. Uh, and so he says, this means that a steam engine, for example, together with the human agent using it, it's just another manifestation of what he calls a physical inference device. Uh, something that interprets the world and makes a decision. So a steam engine uh, is another manifestation of physical inference devices, which evolve, for example, in the direction of higher efficiency. Uh, higher efficiency follows the maximum power principle in the sense of maximizing work output. So for example, here, kind of going back to Jevons and steam engine, ultimately the steam engine is just one way to increase the steepness of the gradient of energy dissipation and hence entropy production. So he's saying technology, how do we know technology isn't just something that has been evolved in the natural selection evolutionary sense. If we invented technology, uh, what's the difference between uh, biological natural selection? So this could kind of take you to uh, ideas of, yeah, political will or how do you organize yourself to achieve a goal, for example, uh, like uh, carbon uh, emissions mitigation and reduction, uh, all kinds of battle over isms, you know, should we have capitalism, communism, socialism? What's neoliberalism? Pick your, pick, put your blank in before ism and discuss it, uh, we can pontificate if one of these is preferred from the standpoint of natural selection and evolutionary pressures, as Carson Herman Balaf is kind of implying, is one of these uh, more of a product of natural selection than, than the other, uh, because we come up with the ideas and we are a product of natural selection ourselves. So uh, just to highlight here, neoliberalism as uh, what might be thought of as a current paradigm, um, this is still, uh, just a quote from Philip Borowski, who studies this uh, a bit. So the distinguishing characteristic of neoliberal doctrines and practices is that they embrace the prospect of repurposing the strong state, so state government, federal level governments, uh, using uh, governments to impose their vision of a society properly open to the dominance of the market as they conceive it. So it's about using markets as information processors, as they say, uh, to uh, you know promote the uh, the in some sense the the companies the capitalist doctrine or promote profits, but using markets instead of other means for decision making, and so neoliberals from Friedrich Hayek to James Buchanan all explicitly proposed these kind of policies to strengthen the state. So we go back to Howard Odom. He says uh, the people have difficulty realizing the patterns of their behavior might be drawn uh, from the larger system. Um, I just kind of put this in here to make a, a tie. So. Uh, if we kind of add the capitalism or uh, neoliberalism sort of framework here, we would say, well, people have difficulty realizing that the patterns of economic mark markets and using those as a decision-making structure can draw from the individuals the behavior that helps the system track maximal power flow through competition of variant patterns for survival. I've added measured as profits <laughs> from adding new degrees of freedom that enable more economic work output, right? This is what technology is at some large degree is adding degrees of freedom that enable the economy to do more work. So that brings me to the including part here. What does it mean to express human agency in this type of environment? Uh, we have agricultural societies, uh, as it kind of highlighted in John Gowdy's book that came out this year, social uh, agricultural societies, the humans, ants, and termites are unique in this 
in this particular way of division of labor and coordination of individuals. Uh, and we all have similar energy and size relationships. So we kind of kind of pontificates as well as others. You know, did, did we humans choose to perform agriculture or did agriculture sort of choose us in some sense and we evolved to, to, to be a part of it? So this, um, so what does it mean to express this? This is just uh, food for thought here. There's some scientific understanding of things, how the world works, and is there some growth of uh, dissipative systems, some sort of general uh, growth uh, driver for growth out there that we're trying to understand how much it does or does not exist. Uh, I brought up these ideas in the box here as uh, some very small subset of scientific understanding, evolution, natural selection, Kevin's paradox, thinking about translating to the economy, the concept of the maximum power principle. And of course, we observe these energy uh, and size scaling laws between energy consumption and size. So, you know, what is the basis of decision-making in the economy for any level consumers or companies or governments? And how would you know, or how would we think about whether doing something is an example of human agency, which would say, be there to potentially counteract the concept on the far left of the screen, the, some sort of inherent potential derived for growth. So if you use markets as a basis of decision-making, uh, it's common that you can include, quote unquote, all externalities, uh, whatever it is, you could sort of make another market for it, right? So is it is that an expression of human agencies? Just keep making markets and markets and markets to include every single thing. We know we can include, a, say, like a carbon market uh, conceptually over the entire economy, yet we have globally or uh, chosen not to do that yet or at least has not been enacted by the uh, political leaders, if you will. Uh, what else would you use? Some sort of values, something that's not based on quantifying prices, something that's based on some other idea. People, of course, disagree on values. Uh, and if you were ex uh, expressing agency, what would this be? You would potentially restrict investment options. Just say, well, you could build machine X, but we're just not going to allow you to build, build that machine. This machine is not worthy for one reason or another. Um, so uh, I'm not going to allow you to do that. And there could be many other things here. So I'm not trying to make a comprehensive list. And that's the end of my talk. Thank you. So thank you very much for that. That was absolutely fascinating. Um, I have a quick question to kick us off. Um, and then everybody just pile in, free for all. Um, that uh, graph you had about GDP and energy consumption and with ant colonies and all this kind of stuff, kind of and the, the sublinear relationship between mass and energy and all this kind of stuff. What I would be curious to know is, would it be possible to understand this through uh, wealth inequality and track, um, you know, capitalists and billionaires as being um, of like an almost different colony? compared to the vast majority of the rest of people and therefore look at their um, access to wealth or the amount of wealth that they have, uh, perhaps the GDP that they produce and then their energy consumption. Um, because whilst it was very interesting to see that there has been a sort of slight decoupling with energy consumption versus uh, two thirds of GDP, also from what I understand, um, the energy consumption of the you know 0.1% of the billionaire class is also going through the roof. Um, so is there a way, would there be a way to track that on some level using the sim same equation? Uh, right. I think people yeah, have tracked it. I haven't put it. I think there are two different contexts that you're bringing up. And the question right. is, how are they related? How's the individuals, including me, I, I think I'd broccoli be 
I don't know, in the, in the top 10% of the world. Um, and yeah, something like top 10% of the world consumes 50% of the energy or yeah. 50% of the uh, greenhouse gas emissions, this kind of thing. So I didn't show ideas from, I guess, what people would call kind physics and, and, and uh, tracking the distribution of incomes or consumption in the world. But it is, as you say, so I, to me, I don't have the answer, but the sort of question in my head is, it seems like there, there sort of will be an inherent, well, this is the question, is if you inherently enable or allow or don't, don't correct via taxes or something like this, um, an unequal distribution of, say, wealth in general or income, how much is that a requirement for growth? Sure. Uh, I don't, I don't know. So in what this, the information I showed is sort of saying, it seems to be once you get to a coordination of individuals that could be cells or ants or humans, um, that to coordinate them, you are going to start to restrict some of them from consuming as much energy as the others. And so for an animal, easy, maybe roughly easy to think about as I grow all my organs, when, when we're born, our organs are roughly, let's just say all fully formed, but they grow in different portion. So as we grow, we grow mostly bone and muscle. Bone and muscle are low energy dense uh, types of organs relative to our brain and our heart, say. The brain and the heart still grow, but they don't grow as fast. And, you know, others on here may explain, you know, why, why that is. Imagine, well, it's to require locomotion to go get food and go do things. And you don't need much more brain to, to go walk around. You need some legs and some arms or four legs or whatever you need to go walk around and get food. Um, so each new cell that's added to animal or body is by definition a cell that consumes less energy per mass. And so but that means that the overall animal ends up having less energy consumption per mass as it grows. Um, and that this enables it to do more work, you would say physical work, walk around uh, and get food. So how much does each individual cell in a body translate to each individual person in the world and like their income? I think that's a, a good question. Thank you. I'm a physicist who uh, had to switch to studying design uh, and organization because physics doesn't uh, address the little little nonlinear transients that begin and end all systems. I had w one question that the Jevons uh, discussion brought up. I've been thinking about that for many years, and uh, I think it may be a, a indication of a learning phase difference between the general public who realize that the system as a whole needs to become more efficient to survive on Earth, and uh, businesses that see efficiency as a way to increase production and multiply impacts and shorten our time on Earth, and that they don't talk to each other or understand each other's motives or processes that, that here we have an example of, of grand scale societal miscommunication, perhaps. What, what do you think of that, Terry? I haven't thought too deeply, but I have thought roughly about what's the difference between, uh, say, efficiency and in industry or production, as you're uh, discussing, and efficiency is like me as a consumer who buys a car that's not obviously or does something to my home to make it more efficient, like insulation. That's obviously part of the production system. And that's a philosophical discussion, whether you can make such a distinction. But one way to start thinking about it, and this may be, it's not really too much of a United States-centric perspective, uh, 
you know, after World War II until the 1970s, the Texas Railroad Commission, essentially the, the, uh, the arbiter of dictating oil prices because we had the uh, spare capacity for oil production. And the Texas Railroad Commission was uh, restricting oil output um, from Texas, which effectively restricted oil output to the world and uh, to keep the price stable. So if they allowed all the oil producers to produce as much as they want, they would have produced too much, the price would have tanked and the industry would have kind of been uh, put into a big slump. So they were prorating this, which is one way to say the energy extraction, the ability to extract energy to the environment was so high, there wasn't enough machines to consume the energy. And so in the United States, each additional home that was built during this time consumed more energy than the previous home. Uh, each initial car consumed more energy per year, say, than the previous car. So that held up until the 1970s. And then the early 1970s, uh, this couldn't work anymore because every single oil well in Texas was producing as much as it could. And so now the restriction was no longer, do you have enough machines to consume energy? The question was, now, do you have enough machines to extract energy from the environment? And now the investment in energy extraction stuff, if you will, and energy consumption equipment, if you will, had to be in some sense, more coordinated, I don't know if that's the right word, uh, in tandem. And then you see after that time that each home in the U.S. on average consumed less energy since the 1970s uh, than the previous home. Each car consumed less energy uh, from than the previous car. And we can interpret this as efficiency, or we can interpret it more generically, I think, as it was going to have to consume less energy one way or the other, whether it was more efficient or not. And you'd have a choice to say, well, my home's going to consume less energy because the superorganism is now more constrained. I can choose to make my home more efficient and still have nice services and a, a nice home to live in, or I can not make that investment and I just have a, a less controlled environment in my home or it's hotter in my home or colder in the winter or hotter in the summer. So that's, uh, I don't know. Yeah, hopefully that makes some sense. But the patterns definitely seem to change in the 1970s for this energy extraction capability versus energy consumption capability. It sort of switched uh, around that time. Well, I have one more, one question. Uh, so thanks for this presentation, Kerry. I think it, I, it it's very uh, illuminating. However, I, 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 even though I also like to plot these correlations between GDP and, and um, energy, et cetera, I, I, sometimes wonder if that is not overly simplistic because I mean I think many of us use GDP as a proxy for for the demands of society just because the numbers are available but um there are some other measures I mean the question is what what are you optimizing for and if is GDP actually the correct quantity to optimize for if you look at there are lots of other um human progress, what is it called? The social progress index and the human development index, etc. And if you look at them, you, you will actually see at, that the these per capita have actually been decreasing now for the last couple of years. So, I mean, it's, it's it, I, I just want to start the discussion here. What what are we really optimizing for and what is GDP actually measuring? Uh, right. I can speak for myself, at least in terms of showing this type of information. I'm I'm not trying to imply I or the economy is optimizing for anything in particular, like GDP or something like that. Court, uh, Steve Keen might talk about, of course, uh, work of Bob Ayers, but you know the uh, GDP seems to be a proxy for useful work or work done by the economy, like physical work done. So this is kind of the area of research that myself and others are kind of pursuing to try to prove out or disprove. Uh, but the other thing is the 
economic modeling that I'm working on from a macro integrating macroeconomics, post-Keynesian ideas with physical flows of mass and energy is there to try to address your question a little bit. And, and that concept of what I'm doing, I'm trying to track capital as mass itself, not as a monetary unit, but I can add a monetary value to it so that I can plot a, a little bit more of a one-to-one correspondence. And in my last paper, I do this, or at least pontificate my model shows the same tendencies as the biological trends I showed here. So I can track capital as a physical mass, not as some valuation of GDP uh, and, and plot the same type of relationship. So, um, so, so to be clear, yeah, I'm plotting energy consumption and mass of biological organisms with energy consumption and GDP, which is not mass, which is another flow. This is maybe partly what you're bringing up. So yeah, I am interested in making the analog more explicit, but so far nothing has told me that it's uh, at least not an appropriate proxy at this time. Um, but the, again, the, 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 the tracking of GDP with useful work, which is energy times efficiency of the economy to work, uh, seems to be a one, a near one-to-one -one relationship for what's been studied so far. And I think that's one of the great insights of, of that area of the research. All right. Thank you very much, Kiri. Uh, Henrik, if we just crack on directly with your presentation. So, uh, yeah. Just short introduction. Thanks, by the way, Rachel, for setting this up. Um, so my name is Henrik Norberg. I'm a physicist, actually, by training. I have to plead my defense already at the outset here, because even though I am, <laughs> I am a physicist, this presentation or the idea that I'm going to present here has, in a way, very little to do with um, with science. Um, so it's it's basically. It's, it's based perhaps partly on the fact that I spent 10 years working in the private sector. And uh, it's interesting when you we work in the private sector and you encounter a problem, the first question the managers ask you, is there any way we can solve this problem without new science? Because science takes time and it costs a lot of money. And if you already have a solution, we should perhaps do it. And I think actually with climate change, if you want to be a bit provocative, there's not much science involved because it's fairly obvious what is going on. And the other thing is that I, I started giving um, climate public climate lectures some eight years ago. And towards the end, I realized that I have to give people hope by proposing some sort of solution. And since I couldn't find any solution anywhere in the literature, I decided to sort of come up with one myself. So that is basically the basis uh, for, for this presentation. Um, and the first point I want to make, and I think it's, uh, well, uh, just state the obvious facts. Um, the obvious fact is this is the Keeling curve. This is, you probably all know it, the carbon dioxide concentration of the atmosphere starting to, at 280 ppm before the Industrial Re Revolution. Now we are at 420 ppm, meaning that one every third CO2 molecule in the atmosphere is actually anthropogenic, has been put there by us. And um, what we should probably try to avoid is the red area up here. Um, the, if we want to stay below, significantly below two degrees of warming. And as we see, there have been lots of attempts to do something like the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, the Paris Agreement, etc. the climate strikes back and this hasn't had any impact whatsoever on this curve. Um, and of course, the shocking thing is not only that we are up here, even though that would be shocking enough, it's actually higher than any time during the last 3 million years or so. But the fact that 
the carbon concentration in the atmosphere is actually rising faster than ever before. I mean, basically three times faster than in the 60s. So with that information, I think it's fair to say that the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change has failed. I mean, it's, um, and I know this is very unpopular. I don't want to criticize anyone in particular, but if you read this document, the ultimate objective was stabilization of the greenhouse gas concentrations at the level that would not interfere with climate, basically. And if you then consider that 30 years later, these concentrations are rising faster than ever, that is a failure. Um, I mean, there's no, no need to mince words here. Um, so what that means is, of course, that um, there is no currently no plan in the world to stop climate destruction. And by the way, I have started to advocate the use of climate destruction instead of climate change because so climate destruction, the definition is it's anthropogenic climate change with disastrous repercussions. And the reason why I like it better is because it's clear who is driving the destruction. I mean, it's an active process. We are destroying the climate and um, um, it's... Uh, it could be stopped if you stopped doing so. And also that the repercussions or the consequences will be pretty fatal. So anyway, if, if we realize this, then of course there are basically two questions to my mind. Question number one is of course, we need to ask ourselves, why did we fail? And then the second question is, and, and the only reason why we have to ask the first question is of course, what do we do now? Because we're really, really running out of time here. Um, if we continue like this, we will hit this 450 ppm in, in like in 10 years or so. And we don't want to do that. Um, so to my mind, it's fairly obvious uh, why we failed. This is my crowd pleaser. I, I made this diagram some while ago and, and it's um, when giving presentations and it's again, it's global carbon emissions on one axis and, and global GDP on the other axis. and since the 70s, if you if you scale the axis and uh, or appropriately, they basically lie on the top of each other. Uh, and now, of course, the G20 nations believe that we should continue to have at least two degrees of of uh, continued um, growth. And um, on the other hand, the Paris agreements calls for having carbon emissions in in 10 years, which corresponds about what 6.7 or so percent of annual decrease in carbon emissions and obviously the reason why i call this a crowd please is when i show this in public lectures the whole audience starts laughing and and that's it's it's a very good point because then i mean then you can basically tell them this is no laughing matter this is the official policy for dealing with climate change today and it's obviously ridiculous um so why did we, um, so the problem is, I mean, this was basically hoping for a miracle. And of course this miracle, unfortunately did not occur. Um, so the problem is of course that we are still in the fossil fuel age. The, the whole question, I mean, we framed the question wrong. I mean, we should never have talked about replacing fossil fuels, because I think it was very obvious from the outset that fossil fuels cannot be replaced. 
mean, there are no other materials on this planet that are that versatile and, and good to use. So it, we need to rethink and rebuild our entire society um, in order to solve this problem. Um, the problem is, however, that countries and corporations and um, people, individuals compete, and we compete technologically, mostly peacefully, technologically and economically. But as we see in Ukraine now and other places, the ultimate ratio of foreign policy is war, and um, sometimes we compete with military means. And no country is basically prepared to let one's guard down to protect the environment. It's kind of like asking the Roman army to, if the Romans were to find out that uh, steel production is too bad for the environment, so they would, so they switch back to stone axes. That is not going to happen. The country with the most advanced technology and the most fossil fuels typically wins wars. So that is a conflict we have. We also see that international agreements, voluntary international agreements don't really work unless there is an enforce, enforcement mechanism. I think there's ample, I mean, most countries now more or less have to admit that they didn't live up to their commitments given at the Paris Agreement and no one, there are no consequences for that. So anyway, this of course led to the myth of sustainable growth. And I think it was a very, I mean, it's very understandable. Um, Sustainable growth was introduced basically, it was like pretending that decarbonization would be easy because people realized that if it were not, if actually it would be very costly to get out of fossil fuels, there's no way nations will voluntarily agree to do so. And basically, so the Paris Agreement, if you want to be a bit cynical about it, it's not really a a decision to stop climate change. It's a decision to stop climate change, provided that it doesn't really cost anything or threaten existing power structures. Whether this was a wishful thinking, I think it was wishful thinking from the outside, from the outset, living that, given that limits to growth had actually been published already 20 years earlier. But that's not the point. I mean, I think we can all agree that this decoupling, the sustainable growth, which would have required decoupling of the economy from carbon emissions. Actually, it didn't happen. Uh, so now, of course, there are two ways out of this, uh, as I see it. One, one idea is, of course, to say, let's switch to society where people do not compete. Um, and even though I, I can sympathize with this idea, I don't think that's realistic. And the other thing is, of course, and at the risk of being a bit trivial here, uh, sports soccer match is also competitive but we have some rules that prevent people from killing each other so the question is i mean we obviously have a completely bonkers economic system um we have an economic system that rewards material extraction and environmental destruction and it actually punishes countries that implement ambitious climate policies so we have to change the rules we need a a system that makes it possible to actually benefit from not doing anything, because not doing anything is the best thing we can do to protect the environment. Um, but of course, we don't want to prevent people from having good ideas. I mean, the, in the renewable energy sector, there have been some good ideas. It should actually be profitable for nation to degrow, and greenwashing should be impossible.
And I think it can be done. And this is kind of the idea that I want to present here. Um, and it's it's very sim simple. Uh, and that I think is the main benefit. So the point is we know that all the carbon that is released into the atmosphere eventually comes from a small number of fossil fuel producers, a couple of hundred companies. And they know exactly how much carbon emissions they produce. If you burn a barrel of oil, you know exactly how much carbon it will be, carbon dioxide will be produced. So it's very easy to measure production. Um, there will be no administrative effort involved. So we basically demand all fossil fuel users worldwide pay a fee directly proportional to their production to Global Fund. Um, the point is they would not, it's not penalizing fossil fuel producers directly. They would only act as tax collectors because they would be free to pass on these costs to their customers. And then you take this money from the fund and distribute that among the world's population or the world's nation on a per capita basis, which respects national sovereignty. We don't need a world government for that. Again, there's absolutely no administrative effort involved and all governments receive money, which they typically like without any tax increase. And then of course we increase this fee until the carbon emissions start decreasing. Um, I, I just recently saw this, there's a Netflix series, Borgen about, uh, and the last latest season is about um, it's about Danish policy or politics in Denmark, and the the plot is that they find find lots of oil in Greenland, and of course we all know what would happen. They would of course say that well we have signed the Paris Agreement, but after all, if we exploit this and pump this oil, we will be very get very rich. So eventually, we all know that if a country finds lots of oil it would probably use it with the current system. If you put in the climate compensation, I mean, they would still be free to pump the oil, but they would have to share the, the revenue that they get from this oil with the rest of the world. And then actually a government might actually decide if the production costs are too high, that this is not worth the effort, just leave it. And of course, there's a good scientific argument for sharing these profits because this is a I, most people don't think about it. The, the reason why fossil fuels are so extremely useful is, of course, that most of the fuel is taken from the atmosphere. If you take the chemical reaction, one ton of coal, and you burn it, it reacts with oxygen. You use 2.7 tons of oxygen and produce 3.7 tons of carbon dioxide. So the main mass, or the same thing if you drive a car powered by gas. The main energy that you use to actually power your vehicle is not taken from your tank of gas, but from the atmosphere. And that means that every barrel of oil that you sell in the world is of course sold with a license to destroy the atmosphere. And I mean, my idea is basically to say, well, we know exactly how much atmosphere we need for this. So why don't we, why don't you pay for it? And that is what this plan would sort of implement. Um, the redistribution is necessary. And one of the people who uh, point this out is um, Jason Hickel. He's very adamant about this because after all, we have these enormous um, inequalities in the world. The, the entire global north has much too high carbon footprint. 
So we, if we introduce a, a neutral, a revenue neutral or cost neutral carbon tax within the rich world, that is not going to change anything. It will redistribute some money within nations that already consume too much anyway. anyway. And there's no way that's going to help. You really have a way. We need to force rich nations to pay for their wasteful lifestyle. And then the other point is, of course, that if you implement such a plan, I mean, this would be a global carbon tax. It will be the same in every country. That will lead to inflation, higher prices. And that means that we, of course, have to make, give, make sure that poorer countries can survive. And, but I think that there's a very good argument for that. I think that would basically eradicate global poverty. It's actually interesting if you look at it, if you implement 100 US dollar per ton of carbon dioxide, that will give a universal basic income of 450 US dollars per capita and year for everyone, every person in the world. Um, so with this, I'm almost done. Um, I'm, I mean, this idea might sound a bit simplistic, but I mean, don't worry. I'm, I'm completely aware of the fact that we are probably at the most dangerous point in human history. And I'm sometimes worried that we discuss, we're discussing water prices when our house is on fire. I mean, the, the world is, we have many problems. We have climate destruction. We have loss of biodiversity diversity. We have food insecurity, chemical pollution, antibiotics, resistance, freshwater access, resource wars, nuclear proliferation. And recently we have a lot of mad kings, complete idiots that are governing the world. And I mean, this, this is a real problem. However, we have to start somewhere. And my idea is a bit that perfect is the enemy of good here. We know that climate destruction is probably the most wicked of these problems because greenhouse, it's a completely global problem. Um, greenhouse gases know absolutely no boundaries. Um, and this means that it's a perfect tragedy of a commons or prisoner's dilemma, especially for smaller countries. Even if a country like Switzerland cuts down on its carbon emission, it won't stop climate change. It will only cause costs it will be costly for for a small country and it will have no impact on climate change basically so uh, we need some sort of global solution and the other point is i think that cheap fossil fuels are really the driving force behind much of environmental destruction and another problem we have and this has been now pointed out there was a um, paper recently or an article by David Wallace Wells and even Ernst and Young in Australia were talking about this that the problem we have today is that everyone is lying um, every company every politician of course admit that we climate change is a problem today this has changed in the last 10 or 20 years but if you compare their commitments to, to what they're actually doing there's an enormous discrepancy so it means that even if you tell politicians or or make politicians problem promise that they are going to solve the problem that is not going to help us at this point another thing is we need some sort of collaboration international collaboration between countries and in order to do this i think we need to come up with 
one simple new rule that sort of can also be used to build re-established trust between nations. So in a way, if you want to make a kind of warlike comparison here, global climate compensation, it's kind of like the ceasefire agreement that we use to end the war. We first have to agree on something and we have to make sure that everyone sticks to this agreement because that would build perhaps some level of trust between nations. It would be very, it would basically invalidate any business model that is based on fossil fuels. And what I like about this idea is I think it's substantial if we could introduce a significant global carbon tax, that would be substantial. It's something that's enforceable because it's only a small number of fossil fuel companies that have to participate. We're not talking about changing the behavior of billions of people here. It's like these couple of hundred companies that need to do something which they are perfectly able to do and it's testable. So we don't have to trust our politicians or business leaders that they're actually doing something. Um, it's easy. We can only we can directly check are actually the are the fossil fuel companies paying or are they not? And any business that claims to be have a plan for carbon neutrality, any nation that has a plausible plan for climate neutrality should actually be in favor of this because. If once you have decarbonized your supply chain, your production costs would not increase when this um, system goes into effect. Okay, so that was all from my side. I guess it's it's more sort of a it's more like what to do rather than why to do it because I think you know that uh, at least as good as I do, but um, it is an attempt to get something done. Okay, thanks a lot. Well, I'll go. Uh, let's see. So I'm half engineer, but the other half of me is, is a social scientist. So listening to both you and um, Carrie, it's very clear to me that we haven't really figured out how to integrate the reality of human, the human level of complexity with the technical issues that we're talking about. So let's see. Um, in terms of it's it's not really very helpful to think of politicians and business people as lying. Rather, they're really doing exactly what their their society or the econo dominant economic system has told them to do, which is to maximize profit for a few people on top, right? I mean, yeah. so it's not just that it's capitalistic and self-serving. It's that it's only self-serving for the people on the very top. And we've set up all of these uh a matrix of rewards and punishments and norms and beliefs and values that all push people to do the same same kind of thing. So that's why if you, you know, if you have all of this wonderful data that tells you why you need um, to not exhaust all of your fuels and not pollute the planet and not do all this destructive kind of thing, what you're going to get is greenwashing because that's the most efficient way for them to maximize profit without actually having to, well, it's just the best way to maximize profit. So what you've done is you, you've put all of the uh, intelligence and creative capacities, people who have been specifically selected for their ability to maximize profit for leads. Mm -hmm. it, they're just, you know, they're just going to find ever more creative ways of working up their way out of it, unless you attack the root problem, which is maxim profit maximizing laws themselves.
Um, I, I totally agree. And and this is why I really believe that what you need is a, you need to change the rules. And, and that is basically what I'm trying to accomplish here. Because if, if you, if you do such, if you have such an automatic, automatic uh, redistribution scheme, it would actually, any business model that is heavily reliant on fossil fuels would suddenly not be profitable anymore. And, and I think that is kind of, that gets you out of this argument because the profit maximizers would then say, let's optimize our business under the new set of rules. And that might actually be a different, they, they would come up with a different optimal solution in that sense. Yeah, I mean, I kind of agree. But on the other hand, don't you think mostly they're going to figure out a way around it? Either they'll pay off politicians to stop things. I mean, I'm living in the U.S. right now, so I <laughs> people who are, you know. No, I, I totally agree in the sense that, <laughs> yeah, I mean, implementing this will be extremely difficult. But that that is kind of, of course, the thing that if you, uh, that is, of course, why politicians then prefer to Im prefer to implement things that do not have an impact, which to me is like the the, the yeah. kind of definition of greenwashing. I mean, exactly. there's this enormous gap between what climate science tells us would be actually required to do and what politicians and business leaders say would be possible to do from a business or political perspective. And bridging this gap, I think, is kind of the, the the name of a game here um and um th that's kind of what, what i'm what i'm going for now the 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 other thing is if you could target a very uh small group of organizations i mean we know where the carbon comes from i think that's a very important point to make uh, uh, uh an airline doesn't produce any carbon and it it buys all the carbon it then emits into the atmosphere. The same is true for for like um, someone who drives a car. So it, I mean, getting it at the source would actually be a good good thing, and it would solve another problem. I don't know if anyone saw this article recently. Um, apparently, Saudi Arabia is currently importing a lot of oil from Russia. Well, of course they do. Yeah. <laughs> Because they buy cheap oil from Russia and then they sell it at Saudi oil and there is no sanctions on Saudi Arabia. So, I mean, the oil gets out on the market. Uh, right. So, I mean, is anyone surprised? No. No. And so this is why you have to sort of get it at the source, I think. Uh, hi, thanks for the, the presentation. So the two talks really uh, got me thinking about if there's any parallel between these large systems and say much simpler physical systems. So obviously it takes um, a lot of activation energy to do anything. So in the physical system, say you have a super cooled water, you still have to make a nucleus and the, yeah. the nucleation process takes on the activation energy. So in this case, um, do you guys see any potential for uh, creating such a nucleus for transition um, to say uh, the scheme that Tarek is talking about? And are there uh, like precedent that you know that in some measures that measures what's the cost uh, to society locally. So I don't know, like people congregating, resource being pulled, uh, diverting, you know, momentarily from other pursuits that's in line with uh, what the system is trying to do in maximizing profit. And what's that local disturbance uh, and the level that's needed to create such a nucleus? Are there such uh, studies? 
Do you want to go first, Carrie? Oh, I think I don't have, well, I have one thing to say, which is not the answer. Uh, something I heard from, uh, Thomas Murphy, Tom Murphy, physicist, uh, UC San Diego and, and sort of do the math blog, maybe guy related. He was just said something like the, the Briggs Myers test, uh, that, you know, some measure of personality. One part of it is, um, are you an abstract thinker? I can't remember what the term is in the Briggs Myers context, but one of it is, you know, are you an abstract thinker? Or are you somebody who needs more hands-on and experiential learning and is he seemed to imply that there was a, a survey done on Americans that 27% were abstract thinkers and 73% were more hands-on thinkers. So uh, our discussion here is kind of this abstract and that made me think, are, are you asking the question, you know, are you need a, a critical mass of abstract thinkers to be able to translate these ideas? And if we're, if you're sort of by definition, you know, roughly 25% of the total, you know, how is, is that a fundamentally a problem that can't be overcome? I, I don't know. So I'm just throwing that out there as my only thought. So I'll stop there. Okay. So, so I have one thought, and that is actually from a uh, German sociologist, Harald Welzer, who was talking about, um, was talking about the anti-nuclear movement in Germany. And what he said was a very critical ingredient is that you have to have a well, if you want to have effective activism, if you really want to get something done, you have to have a well-defined enemy and a well-defined set of demands. And the nuclear industry in Germany, there were many people who were against it. There were people who were thought, I mean, were against these big projects. There were people who were concerned with the risks that with the anti-proliferation movement. There were lots of people who did not like the nuclear industry. And since it was such a small group of companies and there were so many people who hated them, it was kind of difficult. Uh, I mean, they, they lost the battle. And I mean, that is also kind of my thinking here. If you say that there are like a small number of a couple of hundred CEOs in the world that are responsible for taking up, um, taking carbon out of the ground, and there are billions of people who hate them, um, it it might be possible to sort of get make them see the light, especially since the demand we are making or is a very reasonable one. I mean, it's not, I mean, we're not demanding them to lie down and die. We're basically saying, like, act as tax collectors and you'll, you, you get off. I mean, it's like, so I think it's the combination of enormous social, political, legal pressure on a small group of people combined with a very specific and reasonable demand, I think, is to me the, the solution. I'd like to jump in as well and say, surely there's been precedent with um, World War, World War One, and World War Two, uh, how communities and nations came together to redirect the physical systems and the economy in order to end the war. It's exactly as Henrik's saying: when there is a com common enemy, uh, we seem more able to act as a collective, and that is one of the problems when sort of facing this neoliberal, like crazy capitalist society: the atomization of individuals. Um, and the representation of the problem of climate change as an individual problem is really sort of impeding any uh, collective action. There's so many good things you brought up. You showed the atmospheric CO2 curve, which if you uh, analyze it mathematically, it's a pure 2% per year growth rate. Of course, that requires finding the baseline, which I have a way to do. And uh, if you look at the emissions curves, they don't match. So I, I think there's something wrong with our emissions or else there are other sources we're not counting. 
So I, I think that's an additional factor to look into. But the, the clear thing from the math of the atmospheric curve is that the climate change has been accelerating at high compound rates for a long time. It still is. Um, and then the other thing is, you say that the IPCC's organization fails to recognize Jevons, that it treats in its mind that efficiency is reducing the system impact when it's multiplying the system impact. And this is a persistent example of the fixations that human minds develop uh, when they're following rules. You know, they get stuck on the rule and they don't see the context. We have a world community of, that's split between people who are emotionally connected with the context, who feel all the impacts multiplying, and a world community that doesn't. We need to do something about that. Yep, I, I totally agree. And I, I think that the problem at the moment is really, first, until the last IPCC report, they didn't even consider regrowth. I mean, it was all sustainable growth. It was the economy is growing. All the scenarios, emission scenarios were based on this. Um, the other point is I am very worried that very many people in the global north, I don't want to mention any names, but I know very decent people, intelligent and decent people who basically say, well, it is over. Uh, we have to basically just shut down the borders and in the north, we will be able to survive because we are rich enough and we are sort of living in the part of the world that may might have one chance of surviving. I mean, I'm sitting in Sweden now. I mean, I'm in that sense, climate-wise, I'm even, we don't even have a heat wave here. So I feel fairly comfortable at the moment. But I mean, I'm worried that very many people are actually thinking like that already. I look at it demographically, that it really concentrates in the highly educated well-mannered, successful professionals who manage all the world systems, that they have a split personality, one at work and one at home. At home, they're very good, well-mannered, engaged individuals caring about their local contexts and relationships and, and communities. And, and when they get to following their business rules, they ignore the context entirely. It's like a boil to, to be lanced. Uh, Hannah Arendt wrote the book about that, didn't she? The banality of evil. But this is evil by nice people. So you have to do it by caring instead of by attacking. Yeah. Attacking will only harden the positions. Anyway, all that stuff. I'm afraid we must move on to Yi's presentations. All right. Uh, first of all, uh, thanks for uh, organizing this event. I think uh, uh, I'm partly responsible for it. And I reached out uh, to ask for uh, basically uh, advice um, <laughs> from Rachel to see whether people, uh, you know, that she has interviewed can help me really understand better uh, what realistically are humans able to devote to solving this cr uh, crisis. So both in terms of the uh, material flux and also in terms of uh, energy uh, flux. And in thinking about it, uh, we sort of came to develop a, a parameter that we're calling a cooling return on investment. That's uh, in uh, analogy to the energy return on investment. We are talking about energy extraction. And uh, I think uh, this parameter is a multidisciplinary one that has to be invoked understanding of the climate science and the, the current heating power that's driving uh, global warming. So I added a few slides because Rachel wanted uh, some uh, introduction. So I was trained as a, a chemist, physicist, and a fabrication 
person uh, making uh, nanoscale stuff and devices and ultra-sensitive uh, sensing in a high vacuum. And uh, between 2016 and 2021, I was employed by the Roland Institute at Harvard as a principal investigator. Uh, so the goal was to build an atomic resolution microscope uh, that could deliver a structure of any heterogeneous particles of matter in 3D. Uh, utilizing um, uh, the principles of uh, atomic force microscopy and also MRI imaging. And uh, we won't go into details, but uh, some examples of our work towards that uh, grandiose uh, analytical goal include the fabrication of uh, these ladder-shaped uh, uh, tiny objects, uh, the, uh, the thickness of these uh, different uh, rungs of the ladder are just a few uh, hundreds to thousand atoms wide. So it's a uh, tool to force to learn to make these uh, structures, carving them out of a single, uh, a single crystal piece of silicon. And we also uh, learned to do machining that's really high uh, resolution, at least uh, in the depth dimension, by uh, completely uh, reconfiguring an ancient uh, electron uh, microscope. So these are like pretty uh, fun projects that uh, occupied most of my time before I really became aware of the severity of the uh, climate crisis. Uh, between uh, 2017 and by uh, 2019, it became like undeniable that uh, society and also human system, Earth system is in deep trouble. And since then, we have been um, uh, devoting our attention to looking at uh, how uh, concepts and thinking from engineering and nanoscience could help uh, address the urgent uh, problem. So today I will perhaps uh, focus on uh, two uh, a point of this uh, graph that I usually show at the beginning of uh, some of my presentations. One is that actually, even if somehow we were able to completely uh, shut down the emission of uh, CO2, it's still pretty improbable that we could stabilize uh, global temperatures to within two degree targets. Uh, the other is uh, actually there seems to be uh, a very missing central metric that people haven't really been uh, thinking about when they're just proposing uh, different solutions to climate change and uh, sort of realizing that we have to have uh, this very central metric uh, that perhaps can help us uh, uh, assess and uh, thinking in ways that are more efficient. And hopefully I will talk a little bit uh, about uh, uh, our preliminary results and actually today, I think it's uh, more interesting to start uh, on the small scale because we think, uh, you know, anything, uh, uh, you know, big projects start uh, in a garage. So let's see what, uh, what we're talking about using mirrors to rebalance Earth's energy uh, can do at a very small scale. So the experiments I'm describing uh, started um, uh, summer of 2021, and we really started using a micro experiment. Uh, on land, we had the two mirrors and uh, the data were collected uh, since July uh, of 2021. And we placed sensors um, at different depths in the soil and around the, this tiny microarray. We also set up a floating mirror experiment assessing the impact on the evaporation and water temperature also um, last year. And uh, the experiments were in collaboration with uh, both people at the Roland Institute and also uh, different universities in New Hampshire for the land-based experiment. Uh, for the land experiments, we observed quite substantial cooling uh, of the soil temperature uh, and uh, the variation. You can see these uh, daily diurnal uh, cycles where the temperature difference 
between control and the mirrored field maximizes uh, around the middle of the day. We can visualize the same data by looking at the difference to uh, make the difference more visible, and we call that uh, uh, anomaly. So uh, for the case of uh, uh, mirror on the ground, we can observe up to five degrees Celsius uh, reduction in the temperature of the soil at a depth of 10 centimeters. And uh, if we model uh, the depth dependence of cooling as a the usual exponential function, uh, at surface cooling is up to about 10 degrees Celsius for um, a rather sunny day in New Hampshire. Uh, so it's not the place that receives the most sunlight. So it gives us uh, uh, some confidence that uh, uh, these mirror arrays could have significant uh, impact on local temperature, at least. And a very similar result uh, were observed uh, for the aquatic system. And you can notice that uh, if we look at these time series, the water system is much more sinusoidal, and that's a simple reflection of the fact that water has a much higher thermal mass, uh, whereas in the case of land, uh, the temperature response uh, pretty much follows uh, or more closely follows uh, the solar irradiance variation throughout the day. And uh, that message can also be captured when we look at the response of the passive cooling amplitude as a function of the solar irradiance at the different uh, frequency bands. So at uh, uh, the one day inverse frequency, which is in this case, uh, uh, high frequency, uh, we have about uh, three to four degrees cooling at um, 800 uh, watt per meter squared of solar uh, radiation. And uh, approximately the same slope was observed when we looked at uh, multi-day uh, response. And uh, the difference is a bit more drastic for the case of uh, uh, the water reflecting again, uh, the heat capacity of the system. So uh, what can this uh, soil cooling do? Uh, do? Like uh, in addition to perhaps uh, uh, pre uh, preserving crop yields during heat wave events, uh, it's also possible that, uh, um, uh, you know, uh, cooling of the soil might on you know, longer term um, stabilize soil carbon. So these data are collected from uh, different locations of the world, looking at uh, the relationship between uh, annual mean temperature and uh, the soil carbon content. And I'd like to draw your attention to this uh, really high temperature end. It seems like the slope really becomes uh, steeper on this uh, linear log plot. So if we can really uh, prevent the occurrence of really uh, highly extremely hot weathers from really cooking the soil, it might be a useful way to help uh, uh, reducing emissions from soil and perhaps hopefully uh, actually make, uh, improve the uh, sink capacity and the storage capacity of our agricultural land. And another uh, potential application of floating array could be to uh, help bleaching coral reefs uh, avoid some of the worst uh, uh, thermal exposures. Uh, and the, some of those is measured by degree uh, heating weeks. So it's a, a product of the uh, dose, basically how many degrees it's uh, above average times the duration of the exposure. And in our, our very modest back, um, you know, small bin experiment, we could measure a dose reduction um, comparable to what would be necessary to prevent a lot of the, the bleaching uh, for coral ecosystems. So uh, this year we're expanding the experiment uh, to look at the impact of the array density on different soil 
temperature moisture and air temperature moisture uh, responses. And this uh, experiment uh, are again done in collaboration with uh, collaborators in New Hampshire. So uh, a question that we often get from um, the audience is whether these uh, surface-based mirror arrays could interfere with uh, aviation. Uh, so actually it's not really an issue because our test site has been approved and is uh, right uh, next to the municipal airport of Plymouth, uh, New Hampshire. And over here is just a sketch of uh, a particular array and uh, the sensor placement uh, as a way to um, measure uh, heterogeneity both uh, in and around a micro environment around the device and also uh, as a function of uh, edge, uh, distance from the edge. So this picture on the left uh, is really uh, nice, I think, because it also uh, illustrates the fact that the specular reflection is uh, uh, has a lot of potential for urban cloning applications. So we know there's uh, a lot of call to paint roads and the roofs white in order to uh, reduce uh, heating over uh, during heat wave season and also as a result of the urban heat island effect. And uh, uh, what the latest data on human physiology is showing is that uh, when you have you know white pavement, it's really uncomfortable for the pedestrian because when you're outside, it's like uh, you're standing in snow. Only uh, difference being that the sun is a lot, you know, uh, straight overhead. So you have a lot more solar irradiance being uh, scattered and reflected by the ground, and there's no way to hide as a pedestrian. So, uh, you know, individual pedestrian comfort actually significantly decreases when you uh, paint uh, pavements uh, white. Uh, in the case of uh, specular reflectors on the ground, for example, it's much uh, easier or at least pot potentially possible to um, engineer shading strategies such that uh, uh, you don't really get direct exposure from uh, sunlight uh, in the reflected part. All right, so now let's uh, spend a few minutes uh, discussing why the aspirational two-degree uh, target is not really possible even if we were to uh, stop all emissions uh, uh, back, you know, even right now or a few years back. Uh, when fossil fuel is burned, burned, uh, there are different components that are emitted. There are uh, the, the uh, atmospheric warming components, uh, CO2 being the major one, but there are also short-lived uh, particles uh, that's uh, driven by atmospheric chemistry uh, with a starting material that includes NOx emissions, unburned uh, organic components, and also uh, ozone. So the main difference is that the warming components uh, are several orders of magnitude longer lived than these uh, uh, cooling components. And uh, uh, the heating power that has traditionally or in the, in the past driven global warming is the difference between the warming and the cooling components. And uh, in a hypothetical scenario where we were to uh, stop current emissions, the short-lived components would really fall out of the sky within a few days. And the consequence would be a very rapid increase of the net forcing or net warming uh, impact, the greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, one slight positive from the COVID lockdowns in 2020 was that uh, it actually provided a uh, fortuitous experiment uh, to be done uh, you know, by the climate science simulation community, looking at a transient perturbation of uh, this net forcing by a small amount, uh, roughly maybe by a third uh, during like a few weeks to months at different locations. 
So the expectation is that when you have uh, more light coming down as a result of uh, the pollution clearing up, you will have uh, more heat converted at surface. And uh, a hotter surface will increase both uh, the evaporation uh, of water, both from uh, lakes, reservoirs, and plants, um, but also you will also have uh, uh, air rising and dry, uh, driving more uh, vigorous uh, lateral circulation of the atmosphere. And that can that in turn transport this water vapor over longer distances. And when they come down, you might have a more uh, and more extensive rain uh, compared to historical uh, measure, uh, records. So observation, at least for the amount of solar radiation coming down, uh, has been confirmed. So there's generally at least a two watt per meter squared of extra heating power from the sun on the ground uh, measured in different parts of the world. In, um, Europe, uh, where uh, air quality is already pretty good to start with, so its increase is rather modest. Uh, in other parts of the world, like uh, India, the increase has been uh, observed to be up to about 10 watt per meter squared, sometimes 20 watt per meter squared. So the increased solar radiation has uh, led to increased land sheeting. Uh, so the most studied uh, place is in, uh, China, where uh, land surface temperature anomaly of about uh, half a degree Celsius was observed as a result of a two month lockdown. And this warming has been um, uh, uh, found to contribute to at least uh, one third of this uh, extreme anomaly observed in 2020. So uh, it's uh, now quite widely accepted by various uh, uh, groups looking at uh, the events of 2020 that extreme uh, monsoon and rainfall uh, of that year uh, can at least partially be explained by the reduction of uh, fossil fuel emissions and reduction of uh, anthropogenic uh, particles that scatter light. And uh, we all know that this year we're again setting records uh, also perhaps in precipitation in China, and they also had uh, quite a, uh, uh, another lockdown that's uh, quite strict earlier uh, a few months back. So, but studies are yet to come out to analyzing uh, the, uh, to tease out any causal relationship between more, more recent events. So the recent observations basically confirmed what we have known for a long time, that uh, these pollution are hiding a significant uh, power density from reaching Earth's surface. And if we were to really uh, translate this uh, hidden uh, power to a, a temperature difference on Earth's surface, we need to multiply uh, this power density by uh, the conversion factor, which can be derived from paleo uh, climate data. And it's pretty conveniently one, roughly. So you multiply these two numbers together, it's roughly another degree Celsius of heating that's baked in. And there's an extensive list of literature uh, to uh, uh, established these uh, very basic expectations, and it's also uh, really acknowledged in the uh, more technical portions of the IPCC, but uh, the magnitude has been really downplayed to the, the lowest bottom uh, limit in the uh, summary for policymakers. So as a result you know, of the, the trouble we're in, uh, as far as climate is concerned, there's uh, so many solutions that are being proposed. Um, but oftentimes when you look at uh, the proposals, um, many people fail to really uh, subject them into very uh, simple sanity checks. 
And what do I mean by sanity checks? Uh, for the problem of addressing climate, first of all, it has to work at small scale. Uh, we have to be able to uh, scale the full thing while respecting material and energy constraints of uh, the human civilization. And we also have to be able to do it fast enough within the years, maybe perhaps decades that we have left. So what do we actually mean by work at small scale? Well, this is uh, perhaps one of the most important slides uh, in this presentation. So uh, the, the problem that we're dealing with is uh, the fact that there is a gigantic excess uh, power coming in uh, on the Earth system because we have reduced uh, um, the rate at which uh, heat can leave the system. So the difference of how uh, quickly sunlight is being converted into heat versus how quickly uh, that heat can escape through uh, IR radiation. Now, uh, if we also include the aerosol component that's hidden, it's roughly 1,000 terawatts. And we just heard also from previous talk that we, humanity, consume only about on the order of 20 terawatts. So that's a gigantic uh, difference in orders of magnitude. So we need to pause for a second and really think what that means. It basically means that if we were to deal with this problem using any engineering method, we need to have an enormous uh, system efficiency. Uh, so if somehow we were able to you know, use all of our uh, primary energy consumption to deal with the problem, we still need uh, to have a, a cooling return on the investment of uh, 100. But obviously, I think it's not possible for humans to really give up uh, eating or housing or doing other uh, things just to uh, fix the climate uh, and also to survive uh, past a few days or years. So let's say somehow we were able to muster 10% of the energy and devote to this task, then we still need a CRON of 1,000. Um, okay. So a very important criterion, I guess, is that any proposal uh, needs to at least achieve a CROI, at least on paper, of greater than 1,000 before it's even, uh, you know, used to talk about it. But of course, it could be actually 10,000 that's needed if we could only leverage 1% of the energy and the material resources uh, to combat the problem. So I think it's a question for the audience here, and I'm really seeking your uh, expertise and your uh, expert input on what that percentage actually is. Uh, here is just to highlight to the north. Yes. It's got one minute. Okay. So, uh, air conditioner uh, obviously is uh, well far, uh, fall really far short of uh, what's required. So, without going into technical details, one can do the calculation for direct air capture, the poster child of IPCC, and the number if we take uh, into account uh, what's needed to uh, concentrate and uh, condense CO2 and uh, the actual heating-induced atmosphere, it falls short by one order of the magnitude. And another person proposed uh, to increase uh, latent heat transfer. And we can also do that calculation if we were to irrigate uh, you know, uh, all the landscape by making a lot of fresh water, then the efficiency for cooling is not also not very high. And we can also do a calculation for uh, just making glass mirrors. That's what we are working on to really uh, directly eject part of incoming sunlight. Then the ratio uh, at least seems to be perhaps compatible 
uh, with what's required to make a difference on global scale. And it's uh, 1,600 is not, not enough. And that's why we want to develop a much uh, more efficient uh, building materials by going to very, using as little uh, material as possible. And our latest thinking is to channel material that are currently going to the uh, dumps and land, uh, landfills, including plastics, uh, aluminum cans, and glass, and uh, also perhaps fugitive methane in order to power the fabrication and isolation of the whole infrastructure. And these numbers are what's needed to make enough reflectors to more or less cancel out the added radiative forcing from the CO2 emissions every year that are currently outputting. So 50 gigaton CO2 equivalent. So uh, I prepared uh, this slide for mature scientists, and, uh, but we also worked with uh, people in different disciplines, including one of the first the heat officers uh, in the global south and also uh, nonprofits uh, seeking to ameliorate the life experience of uh, people suffering from 50 plus uh, extreme heat. And we'd like to encourage you to consider uh, helping us and joining the effort. And uh, I'd like to thank uh, Roland Institute for initial funding and also uh, current members for their support. Thank you very much, Yi. That's absolutely fascinating. Uh, who would like to kick us off? Yeah, could I have a go? Please. You know, it's all along the lines of small is beautiful, but I was in the Channel Islands just the other day. We're looking at, um, I think it's a big uh, lacuna, shall, shall we say, looking at heat networks on the one hand and cool on the other. And, you know, from in, in terms of ocean and marine cooling in particular, um, what Charlie Payton has been doing there for the last 20 years, to my knowledge, you know, just he, he's, he's an absolute purist, is, is, is really sort of low tech, um, you know, basically using seawater to cool, taking, um, using sunshine to uh, take seawater and turn it into, um, well, basically to cool it um, with the, you know, with, with wind flows essentially. And, um, and the outputs are water, um, you know, tomatoes usually or whatever, but it's really, it tight, it's a really interesting technology that in that it's really, really low tech and achievable <clears throat> pretty much now, but, uh, it's been adopted on a big scale by sort of, uh, venture capital and whatnot. Um, in Australia, a massive, massive, I think it was CSP, they went for to, to go for massive tomato warehouses. But the point is that using marine heating and cooling, it, it is possible to do huge amounts. But you, what you're doing is you're looking at the end of it. I'm going to come on to this myself. You're looking at the service and working back as to how you got there in terms of the least carbon fuel use. And that, to me, is the absolute, absolute necessity uh, to deploy these sources because everybody's looking upstream. Everybody's looking at energy. What people are not looking at is exergy. They're not looking at what comes out of the system and saying, how do we actually come up with a complete system that reaches that? And again, that one of the reasons for that is the legal and financial structures, but I'll stop there. Otherwise we still, you'll be taking five of my minutes, Rachel. So I'll stop that. <laughs> Thank you, Chris. Henrik? I, 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 find this is a very good idea and, and uh, I, I totally agree with your assessment both that probably there's a lot of locked in warming already then, and um, I, I would love to collaborate on, on this also from, from a professional point of view. 
nonetheless, I'm starting to sound like Senator Cato here. I mean, the, in in Rome about the necessi- necessity of destroying Carthage. Um, we, um, I mean, still it, it it doesn't in any way change the fact that I mean we have to g- stop emitting greenhouse gases out to, into the atmosphere. I mean, yes, we will need these solutions, uh, but. Mm. We have to sort of, we, and and the good way is, of course, if we if we could get the fossil fuel companies to pay for this uh, through carbon tax, it would have a sort of a double effect. Yeah. I'd like to uh, like respond to that uh, excellent comment. So, uh, because of the limited time, we don't have time to really ex- uh, explain the f- whole framework. Uh, so, obviously, anything that could be uh, likened to geoengineering would have this uh, more hazard. Uh, problematic associated with them. Uh, so the thing with the mirror is that uh, uh, if we think about it for a minute, actually it's a technique that uh, favors a transition to more renewable energies. So one example, currently we're using silicon panels to capture one sun of incoming power. And then I think that's a very wasteful use of the PV photovoltaics because the sunlight, even though it's hot on for humans, it's not really, really hot uh, from technological point of view. So one very simple way is to say, just focus three mirrors onto a single panel and somehow do your heat sinking better. It's very simply just attach it to a, a heat sink to, a, to some water tank that you capture both the thermal component and also the photovoltaic components and you use one third uh, 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 silicon. Yep. Right? So, so it's actually one way that catalyzes the transition uh, rather than impedes it as would uh, say uh, soft, uh, you know, SAI stratospheric aerosol injection would uh, surely do for any renewable energy. Thank you. Kerry? Uh, I think Ye might have sort of answered my question, which was how would you compare this to photovoltaics if someone was looking to make some mixed investment and aside from the land use kind of thing? Um, I don't know if you have anything else to say. I mean, you could do their CROI of PV and CROI of mirrors and combine them, r- roughly speaking, but yeah, any other yeah. thoughts on it? Yeah, so the thought is that uh, there are different ways, so many different ways to capture solar energy. And we sort of are uh, locked into the, in my opinion, one of the least efficient one, which is a standard rooftop uh, PV. Uh, I mean, from an engineering, uh, both uh, equivalent emissions and also material use point of view, uh, concentrating versions are far better, but uh, early mover advantage sort of locked us in to this uh, rooftop so, uh, PV. So I don't think that's a really good good thing. And also... Uh, traditional PV converts 8% of the uh, light to heat, which exacerbates uh, warming, actually. Uh, so, so I think we can, could do much, much better. And especially if we analyze glo- uh, residential energy consumption. Uh, so in the global north, you know, 70%, anywhere between 60 to 80, depending on your particular location, is for heating purposes. So if we can co-capture that heat, uh, then we can just be so much more efficient, not only in the two electricity conversion step, but also in the end use forms. And that, those discussions are not really, really being, uh, you know, are not happening much. Thank you very much. Hugo? Yes. Hello. Very great talks. Uh, I, 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 I love this, uh, this uh, presentations. Um, just uh, several, so many things, so many interesting things. And one point that I would like to make, I liked all the talks, but I liked in particular the last one by Ye Tao, because you have the right approach. The approach that you have to tell people to do something. If, if I, um, most of what is being said about 
climate change or climate destruction, destruction as, uh, as Henrik used the correct term, climate destruction, is that you should avoid doing something. It doesn't work. <laughs> we have to tell people do something. And the engineering approach by Yetao is, uh, is very interesting. I'm not sure how practical it is alone. It would not work. But together with other approaches, I am sure it is a good idea. And let me just mention the field in which I'm working right now. I'm trying to get interested into something that I will call ecosystem engineering. Because the ecosystem, you can see it as an engineering system. It, it is there to keep temperatures stable. And you can, uh, um, you had a very, very interesting concept that um, cooling uh, return for energy investment. Excellent idea. I, I love it. Now, the ecosystem can be leveraged to cool the planet by itself without you needing to do big investments in materials and things and mirrors also, because the ecosystem by, it, by itself cools the, the planet. We know, and we're discovering it now, that forests cool the earth. It was not known, not just because of a question of albedo. Albedo is the opposite. Some people still think that forests hit the planet because the albedo is lower than that of a desert. So the, con the consequence is you cut the forest, <laughs> make a desert, and then you cool the planet. No, it doesn't work like that. Forests are very, have a very sophisticated cooling mechanism, which is based on evotranspiration, condensation at a higher heat in the atmosphere, which means that the heat is transferred from the ground to the upper atmosphere. And from there, it goes to space, going through a thinner layer of uh, greenhouse gases. So the whole effect, the overall effect is cooling. And that's true also for the sea. The sea is an even more efficient, I think, way to cool the planet if we just add to the sea some whales. <laughs> That's what we need. On the ground, you can put mirrors. On the sea, you must put whales. Your whales, the whales will um, mix the nutrients in the sea, increase the um, metabolic activity of the organism, which a photosynthetic organism, and cool the planet. It will, they could, I think, in principle, cool the planet a lot. And that, those, I think, are, we have several, several solutions. But the good idea, I think, is that tell people to do something. Don't tell them, don't do whatever you are doing. That doesn't work. We, um, you mentioned Yetao, I think, or, or or uh, no, no, you, Henrik mentioned that the limits to growth was 50 years ago. And their mistake was telling people that they, sh they should not do something. No, <laughs> it didn't work. You didn't expect it to work. So. so it is very good. We need to go out there and do something. And thank you very much for these excellent talks. Thank you for uh, the uh, uh, encouragement and also bringing up the importance of uh, the reason why we're doing these things. In the end, it's, the goal is not to build mirrors. No, we're interested in rebuilding ecosystems and providing the habitat for the human animal. So improving uh, forest coverage and also rebuilding uh, marine ecosystems so that uh, top predators like uh, whales can thrive is our end goal. Uh, so I agree that uh, planting uh, trees and increasing uh, irrigation forests can lead to uh, heat loss by evapotranspiration. Uh, so the, 
one thing that I recently only became um, uh, aware of is papers from 2018 onwards have started to show that uh, uh, surface cooling by this mechanism actually have some negative consequences. One of which is uh, when you partition the heat uh, from the uh, sensible, basically hot air component to the uh, evaporative latent heat component, you actually reduce cloud cover. So there is a negative feedback there. When you have less clouds, you have actually more net production at ground level. So that's one thing to be aware of. The other uh, uh, bad piece of news that uh, Sally came this year is our studies on the physiological impact on humans. Uh, as a, uh, comparing the two stressors, one is the moisture based on humidity, the other is temperature. And it's found that while, yes, on a thermometer, you have a decreasing temperature when you increase evaporation, green roofs, et cetera. But uh, from physiological human mortality perspective, you'd rather be better in a very hot but dry environment rather than a cool and cooler and a moist environment for the same total thermal energy content. So we need to be a little bit more careful on that front as well. Uh, but uh, thank you. And we certainly need to do this, a CROI calculation for everything that's being proposed. I think it needs to become, a, say, a standard for climate uh, mitigation proposals. Thank you very much. If you're happy to just start, Steve. Yeah, sure. Okay. Well, I very much enjoyed the previous presentations. And what I want to give is a bit of explanation to most people as to why uh, we haven't taken the action we shouldn't have taken on climate change. People tend to focus on the fossil fuel interests and vested interests, but I think it's been primarily the economists who are responsible for us ignoring the dangers until, of course, it'll be far too late to take a gradual approach, which is what they're trying all the time to encourage us to do. Leave it to the market. Let's nudge prices using carbon taxes. These are three very recent papers by neoclassical economists. One bunch saying that there'd be a, a 3.67. Notice the two decimal places of accuracy, which is enough to tell you you're dealing with lunatics. 3.67% decline in GDP by 2100 from a four-degree increase in temperature. Another lot say that there'd be a 7.22% fall from another 3.2, which would take us to 4.5 degrees over pre-industrial. And another group claimed that losing virtually every significant tipping point on the planet would reduce GDP by roughly 1.4% at a six-degree increase in temperature. This is lunacy, sheer unadulterated lunacy. Nobel Prize winning Nordhaus, his claim in 2008 was a 6%, a 7.9% fall in GDP for a six-degree increase in temperature. These are all relative to what was supposed to happen in the absence of climate change. That's the IPCC one up here. And this is the most recent IPCC too. Warming of four degrees, 10 to 23% decline relative to global GDP without warming at all, which is basically nothing to worry about and that's the message that has got through to politicians and journalists where at the same time as scientists are saying, we're going to die fundamentally if you get anything above two degrees, this is ignored because what people get, what people listen to is not scientists, but they listen to economists. And that's a huge, huge mistake. Now, the question is why the economists made this mistake. And the fundamental reason is they're climate change deniers. The starting point they all seem to have is not denying that it happens, but they deny that it matters. And the basis of this is they think, well, capitalism, our model of capitalism, can cope with anything. Therefore, global warming can't be an existential threat. That's really about the only way to make sense of the sort of garbage that they publish very gleefully. 
in all of their papers. You don't have to go looking in dark corners to find this. You find it in their published papers. But here's Nordhaus in 1991 saying, human societies thrive in a wide variety of climatic zones. Therefore, climate doesn't matter compared to other things like labor skills, access to markets and technology. That's a complete misunderstanding of what climate change is about. Um, again, quoting the so-called group of experts, 10 of whom are economists out of, out of eight, 19, three degrees would be small potatoes. This is literally the level of sophistication that they're coming up with. I'm almost sure this is Larry Summers, who's one of his 19 experts. It takes a very sharp pencil to see the difference between a world with and without climate change or with and without mitigation. In other words, it's trivial. And you would have seen Stuart Kirk from HSBC coming out and citing this and saying, basically exposing the, the belief in the finance sector that it just doesn't matter. Now, even though Nordhaus was saying these trivial things about what economists had to say, when he asked scientists, they gave him estimates 20 to 30 times as high as what the economists gave. He said that's an important topic for future research. He has done nothing about it in 28 years. Um, and then again, the IPCC, the same old stuff. Um, now, how do they reach these results? Well, they make what they call simplifying assumptions. I call fantasies. And here's one. A roof will protect you from climate change. Now, it wasn't written quite that blatantly, but the Nordhaus said that 87% of industry and producers in sectors that are negligibly affected by climate change. Now, what were they? Manufacturing, mining, would you believe mining? Uh, utilities, finance, trade, most service industries. Difficult to find major direct impacts over the next 50 to 75 years. This is simply a failure to think. Uh, and the IPC, the same sort of thing. Agriculture, forestry, fisheries, and oh dear, mining is going to be exposed. Therefore, they're vulnerable. Others take in close, in controlled environments and are not really exposed to climate change. In other words, a roof will protect you from climate change. They have no idea of what it actually means. And the, the way they've made up the numbers that they then publish in their papers include using today's very weak relationship between temperature and GDP across the globe, across geographic space. And then say, we're going to assume what applies across space now applies over time as well. You know your mathematics, that assuming, that's assuming ergodicity for the climate, which is just nonsense. And they even, they, they rather than being what they claim to be, which they specialize in economics and other things, people specialize in other things, they've made their own model they call integrated assessment models, rather than the GCN for global climate models that scientists actually develop. And not one of those models yet has included precipitation as well as temperature. This is from a 1991, 2021 paper making that point. Effects on precipitation have yet to be incorporated in economic studies. So what do they assume? They simply assume that if temperature improves by getting close to what they call an optimum, then so will rainfall. Would you trust these people for a weather forecast? It is just insanely stupid. Uh, so we tend to see the fossil fuel companies as the, the enemy in the whole battle about climate change and so on. Uh, well, I say if they're the, the armies we're fighting against, the arm dealers are the economists. And their work is so bad, so transparently bad, that I think it'll answer culpable negligence. It'll cause ecocide. And they should be, once the climate of ecocide is instituted, economists should be uh, in the dock along with the fossil fuel companies. Now, uh, and it's so easy to criticize. This is what I found ridiculous. I thought when I started taking a look at their work, I'd need to explain why Ramsey model was the wrong model for long-term analysis of capitalism and so on. Instead, I found it simply look at their assumptions. 
and this is this is a paper I published uh, two years ago, and the title is all I could say: the appallingly bad. That's it is just doesn't deserve any professional respect whatsoever. And the hardest thing is getting used to the fact that you should not respect them. They simply don't know what they're talking about. Uh, and the most recent paper, the one that said if we lost the uh, lost some of the sea ice in the Arctic, Greenland, West Antarctic, um, the AMOC, uh, the Amazon rainforest, uh, uh, the uh, frozen permafrost frozen in the tundra, and ocean methane hydrates, and the Indian monsoon, we'd lose 1.4% of GDP at six degrees above current level. It is just insanely bad, stupid material that should never have been published in anything other than cartoon books. Uh, it doesn't belong in refereed literature. Now, to, to engage and start talking about what actually does make sense, and this comes into some of the work that Hen Henrik and Carey were both talking about earlier, uh, there is a very strong linear relationship between energy and GDP, the correlation which you can see is virtually one. But also when you look at change in energy and change in GDP, the correlation is 0.83. There's the long-term correlation. That's world energy in, um, I think that's in BT, uh, kilotons of energy of oil equivalent uh, on, the, on the horizontal. The vertical is world GDP in, in US, uh, I think it's 2010 US dollars. When you look at the change in one and the change in the other, they are virtually one for one. The correlation set is 0.83, but those are both done on the same percent per year scale. So fundamentally, GDP is energy transformed into useful work. Okay? And, and that just emphasizes if we lose the energy, we'll lose the GDP. And that's going to happen because when you say, if we suddenly realize we've massively overshot what we should be loading onto the planet, what's going to happen? When energy declines, well, that will force a decline in GDP as well. And we'll be stuck with this dilemma. Do we let the energy fall? And can we afford to in terms of our human civilization? But we're destroying the biosphere in which that civilization depends at the same time. And this will happen long before we get to the temperatures that economists are talking about, four degrees, let alone six degrees. So we're far overshot what is sustainable in the biosphere. Therefore, we have to reduce output and consumption, even if we're not forced to do so by shortage of energy. And we need a mechanism to do that, which will put the burden of the adjustment on the rich rather than the poor, because we saw with the Gilets jaunes demonstrations in, in um, France before COVID struck, uh, the, the, the poor are paying, uh, are living so close to hand to mouth now and in most Western societies, you put up their costs in any one area, they'll, they'll revolt. So to hold society together, the rich has to be the ones who pay. And my preferred solution for this is what I call tradable carbon credits a number of different names. Now, the proposal was, I first thought of it oh, about three or four years ago, and I then found that a guy called Adam Hardy had begun doing exactly the same with a proposal he calls EcoCore, and I recommend taking a look at that for the, for the overall idea. Um, but I don't think anything like this is feasible politically before the scale of the change becomes apparent. And once the scale of the change becomes apparent, will it be technically feasible to bring it in? It's a real, a real dilemma in both directions. Um, so the, the, second, the second best uh, is to say, well, let's just have huge transfers to the poor. We have to use the government deficit to enable the poor to buy the basic commodities that are related around energy and food so they don't boil to death as they're doing in Europe right now or starve to death as they're doing in Africa right now. We have to find a way to effectively provide a, a basic income for everybody as we reduce the income 
of the ultimate rich. Now, and the, the issue which was mentioned a couple of times here, and this is why, why I like the mere work so much, uh, can, we, can we transition to 100% renewables before we reach critical levels of CO2? And the scale, I think, is simply inconceivable to actually do that. That's why things like the MIR project are so necessary. This is excellent work by an Australian mining engineer now based in Finland called Simon Meitschau. And he's looked at what would be involved if we wanted to replace the 85% of our energy that is currently generated by fossil fuels. So if we look over here, this is the non-fossil fuel uh, production in 2018. If we simply scale them up to take up the 85% of energy, which is currently produced by fossil fuels, we would need, and, and the numbers are accumulative, 74,000 new bio-waste uh, so stations, 600 new, 600 new um, thermal stations, 69,000 solar power, 63,000 wind power, uh, even the, the nuclear power, 834 new nuclear power stations. That's just simply to maintain the current ratios. Now, simply, we're not going to do it. There's simply no way we're going to get there. And if we tried to do it, um, uh, we don't have the minerals anyway. That's the, that's the next point here. When you look at uh, uh, the resource usage we currently um, undertake to enable us to produce the goods we currently produce, uh, we are exhausting the periodic table. This is a, a this is a taken from one of Simon's other papers, but it's actually uh, a table done by the uh, European Union back in two thousand and fourteen. And the green elements are the ones which we have in abundance, but the ones with different colors are ones which are in serious threat in various ways. Now, to, to me, with, with helium, zinc, and gold, and the medium, which are essential elements of many manufacturing processes today, already it, with a serious threat to availability in the next century. Phosphorus, without which the life is impossible, that is also on the endangered list. And there are very many others that we use for a range of lithium, obviously, for batteries, which are going to be in, likely to be in short supply. So we've got a, a real resource constraint and we have a economic constraint as well in terms of we simply can't maintain the current level of lifestyle we have, but we can't impose the fall in the lifestyle on the poor. So we need to do two things. We need to work out how to finance the massive scale of energy conversion we're going to need. And you can forget about getting any guidance from that from mainstream economists because as well as having bullshit theories about the uh, climate, they have bullshit theories about money as well. They have no understanding of how money is created. Uh, they're useless to ask for a guide about how you can actually raise the money, which is necessary to finance these activities. And the basic insights come out of what's called modern monetary theory. And that is the government doesn't borrow, it creates money. So it could create the money that's needed to finance this. And frankly, the private money system, which is where banks also create money, is likely to collapse when this crisis starts hitting because there'll be so many companies that can't repay their debts. Uh, you won't be able to rely upon private credit. You'll have to have government money creation uh, being the basis of our monetary system. And I've built a software package I call Minsky, which is designed for doing monetary modeling of that sort. This is a what I call the godly table from that particular uh, program. I'll come back and talk about that in the discussion if necessary. Uh, but what it shows is that the deficit itself creates money. The government doesn't borrow from the public. When it runs a deficit, it creates money for the public. Um, the, when, this, when it sells bonds to finance its deficit, it's not actually using the bonds to create the money. The bonds actually enable the banks to swap a non-incoming asset, which they get from 
the government spending, which are reserves, for an income earning one, which are bonds. That's actually a, a bonus to the financial sector. And if the government sells bonds to the public, rather than that funding getting money from the public to fund what the government does, it's simply reducing the purchasing power of the, of the public sector, of the pu public, which we may need to do uh, to re reduce consumption, as we've done in the Second World War, to focus all of our efforts upon the uh, process of fighting climate change, rather than as you know, the comparison back in the uh, Second World War was uh, more parachutes, less silk stockings. Uh, and we have to relearn what we learned from World War II, that we don't use taxes for revenue. It's not a case of taxes to increase, enable spending, it's the government spending and then taxes taking that money out of circulation. Now, rationing, I think, is also going to be necessary. And the idea here is where this is where the universal carbon credits or tradable, tradable carbon credits come inside. And that is we could use digital currencies to have the central bank create an account for every citizen. You could distribute universal carbon credits on a daily basis at a rate which is equal to the average carbon per country. So this is not an idea which says you have to have international agreements. I'd actually want to bring this in at the national level because one of the reasons the fossil fuel companies like talking about international agreements is that they will never internationally agree. Okay? So we can do this at the national level instead. Every, every person in a, in a country gets the average per capita carbon for that country per day. And all goods have two prices, a money price and a universal carbon credit price, which is based on the carbon content of the product being sold. Now, in that situation, 95, given the massively skewed distribution of income we have, 95% of the population would have excess universal carbon credits to sell. The richest 5% would exhaust their carbon credits and have to buy off the 95%. So that would both be an income redistribution mechanism, but also extreme pressure on the rich to reduce the carbon content. And that's both directly through their own consumption and also through technological advances to get away from fossil fuels towards renewable energy systems. So that would be politically popular. Now, it would be opposed like hell for the power elites in, in society, but it would be popular with the mass once they realized this is what the idea was. And then it could be used for rationing when the scale of the, the crisis we face becomes apparent. And again, as I said, the EcoCore proposal that I mentioned earlier is the place to take a good look at look at it. Uh, an essential part of this, and I've, I've run over very quickly, but I'm happy to come back and illustrate this on my Minsky software uh, in discussion. Uh, government finances will be vital for the transition. We can expect the private monetary system to collapse once the, the scale of the climate crisis comes our way. Um, because you make you can't make a profit out of reducing output, and that's what we're going to be requiring people to do. Uh, so you need to finance investment while there's declining world output, and in that sense, the government is about the only way you're going to be able to do it. Thank you very much for that, Steve. Mm. Thank mm. you. Um, I have a quick question, and then we'll move on to Henrik. Um, if the private monetary system is going to collapse, but also we would need a world central bank to distribute these uh, carbon credits, um, I mean... How can both of those things sort of be true at the, the same time? You, 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 don't, you don't need a global. Money is national. Money is fundamentally a creation of a national system. So uh, all the national currencies could continue. Uh, you'd simply say we have to add an additional parallel system to that so that we put the pressure of, of adjustment uh, by bringing in a carbon-based pricing system. And fundamentally, this is a transition to a system where money is based on energy. Right. Okay. Thank you. Henrik? 
Thanks for this excellent presentation. I really like it. Of course, I've read this paper about the appallingly bad economics, and and I totally agree. I mean, it it's like, mm. um, I I mean, it it's there's criminal intent behind it, or basically, yeah. Or I would say neoclassical economics is kind of like it's a Bible school, isn't it? I mean, it it it's yeah. sort of a, they they are sort of. A, preaching something there. But anyway, um, but one point which I find so strange in this whole debate, uh, both by from economists and also from climate researchers, is that why aren't they talking about risks? Uh, I, I thought oh, yeah. climate scientists are doing exactly the same mistake. I made a fun plot once about the carbon budgets. So you see this carbon budget, um, 50%, like some year ago, it was 400 gigatons of carbon dioxide for 50% probability or chance of staying mm. below 1.5 degrees. Now, I mean, I don't question the models behind it, but I mean, who decided that 50% was a good, I mean, an acceptable mm. risk? And if you then do like, if you then do the distribution, you realize if you want like an, already with zero emissions, you have like a 20% probability of a shooting. And if you want like 95% mm. probability of staying below 1.5, then I mean, the, the carbon budget is minus 300 gigatons. So I think, I mean, I mm-hmm. honestly believe that the climate researchers ought to be blamed because I, they, they fell into an argumentative trap by sort of pretending yeah. that the problem is actually, that the risk is manageable. And of course, the point is, this system is so complex and we only have one planet. Mm. So essentially, no risk is acceptable. Yeah, and therefore you should basically say, I mean, forget it. It's it's like th- there's no nothing to model here. We can't allow carbon concentrations to increase. Period. I agree, and this is, uh, I mean, it's naivety of, of of scientists. I think uh, because scientists actually are scientists. Economists are re- religious ideologues, yeah. and uh, the scientists are thinking, oh well, economists are like the rest of us, and. Uh, you know, they must be translating our work into economic numbers. They're doing anything but. They're making up their own stupid numbers. And because those numbers are consistent with people who want to have a short-term interest uh, in you know, short-term profit, uh, then their ideas get promoted. And also politicians and journalists have far more training in economics than they have in science, obviously. And they don't realize this is something absolutely critical. We, sh- we, cannot, we should not have allowed the temperature to go above half a degree above the long-term average, let alone the one and a half are at now, the two we're virtually locked into, the three we probably face. So it, it is treating uh, a, an existential crisis as a cost-benefit exercise. That's the real problem. And I think we have to be ready for the work that Yuto is talking about where we say, oh, okay, we're, we're, the ship is now, well, there's a bad analogy, but the ship is now sinking. Here's the fastest way to put place on it so we don't all go down and drown. And uh, that's what we need. Thank you. Jesse? First, very quickly, uh, to talk about the apparent malfeasance of the whole system, there's also a very similar kind of um, neglect here that we're talking about symptoms and not causes, and uh, not particularly not the endless compounding of, of investment in multiplying the demands of the system on people and the earth. And Keynes pointed that out and, and got buried for pointing it out socially, uh, and uh, so have every, every, has everyone else. This wonderful study, I think, pretty solidly points out that there is a problem, that there is a crisis coming, 
from this point of view as well as others I've heard. And that government is going to be on the hook somehow. Is it a choice ultimately, though, between business and, and finance stopping to compound their profits in, in multiplying their own power and realize they need to use their profits to care for the, the system they built? Because that's the only source of profits in the future, uh, is caring for the system we have. And I don't see government as really being an excellent agent for steering a whole complex economic system. So somebody's I got to steer a system to, to safety. We didn't outsource the Second World War. Uh, when it comes to an existential threat, it tends to be the government level down that things happen at. And then the government uh, provides the finance and directs the ac actions of private corporations that build the weapons. And oh, that, I think the world, okay. And also the government can create money uh, in the same way the private sector can, uh, and much more effectively. The private sector, the money creation system is likely to collapse. Okay. I'm, I'm, I just can't see how it will survive uh, when you suddenly find corporations are being, you know, being forced to reduce output or losing money, and they then are going to go financially bankrupt. So without, without a government money creation on a grand scale, and again, the scale are equal to or greater than we did during the World War II, when deficits were regularly 20% of GDP every year, 25%, 40% of GDP deficits were common in the Second World War. And they didn't have to borrow the money, they created the money. And the money then financed the soldiers, financed the weapon manufacturing, and so on. So we're going to go into a world where government money creation absolutely dominates what the private sector does. And if it doesn't do that, then the private sector will collapse. Well, I, I quite agree that that that's the kind of situation we face and that in, that for things like a world war, governments do great. But then what do you do afterwards? Do you just go back to the system that created the problem? That's what would happen well, if we don't have another solution. Well, the other solution, we're going to have to become a creature that, that respect life and regard our role in the planet as maintaining life. And that's the first and foremost thing humans are, should be responsible for, not exploiting it. And that's a complete change in the in the ideology of capitalism we currently have dominating our system. So I'm quite aware of the need for that change. But I'm saying if you leave the transaction to the private sector, uh, the private sector will be Mad Max. Thank you, Steve. Kerry? Yeah, just a, a short thing from a, what, you know, your goals of this meeting and strategic kind of point of view. Yeah, there's a question of how much to talk about change of, I don't know, technologies or people versus this idea that Steve is bringing up and <clears throat> myself and Heinrich brought up, which are more conceptual. How much to get people to buy in the, any, given, given, any given set of actions mm. do they have mm. to understand this disconnect between the science and economics, right? That's a conceptual thing. Yeah. Do people have to buy into that or not? And uh, at first uh, to, to decide to agree to other kinds of actions or move forward. That's just, I'm just throwing that out there as a fundamental question. Yeah. I mean, I think, uh, one of the hassles is humans don't react to a crisis before it happens. Okay? We, we, we have social systems which benefit out of people being on the, on the exponential function of whatever particular society looking at, whether that's, you know, Romans conquering more territory or Easter Islanders using trees, whatever, whatever process is, that the power structure amplifies the power of those who benefit from the current system. And even if you can say, look, it's going to crash for whatever reason, you don't get to listen to it after. Oh, dear, it's crashed. Who would have thought that would happen? And then after that, then we react. Now, in the past, we'd be able to react by moving somewhere else. The only person who's trying to do that right now on Earth is Mars, is, is Elon Musk to Mars. 
and it isn't quite the same scale as moving from the Roman from the Roman areas to the uh, to the uh, northern uh, the, the Gallic regions, whatever else. The motion simply isn't possible. So that is our real dilemma, and that's why I think the project like you know, Talesmere is absolutely essential. We have to be ready as soon as we can to move in that direction to reduce the massive damage we're doing right now. Uh, you know, go into global cooling that we actually implement to manage the planet's temperature uh, because the chaos we're going to go through when the climate starts breaking down, uh, you know, again, it probably destroy our societies with the climate itself. Thank you, Steve. Sally? Yes, well, that was a wonderful talk. I really appreciated it. Um, I particularly think the role of private for-profit interest-bearing money is critical to all of this because what they do in, in the process is basically suck up money from the productive side of the economy and concentrate it into the speculative side of the economy. Yeah. Mm. In the end, you'd have, um, you know, the bankers would all own all the money in the world if everybody paid off the, the interest on their debts. Um, so what, what do you think about, uh, instead of talking about energy-based money, talking about constructive-based money, that is, when you, not only did they, did World War II, they basically just made money by investing in productive capacities. But same thing happened with, with Abraham Lincoln in the Civil War. He invented the greenback dollars and the same, same basic idea. I, many people say that's the big problem with his plan is that it, the Northern bankers were, of course, all against it. Anyway, but um, so I'm, I'm thinking that Instead of focusing on the environment per se, because that's only one of many symptoms of this oligarchic overreach and excessive, you know, what, just essentially increasing greed and attempt to own everything. I'll just come in there and say that the finance sector has been allowed to be a power unto itself. And one of Marx's best lines, uh, with thinking the volume three of Capital, when he said, talk about centralization, the... Uh, the, the uh, financial sector and, and the parasites that hang off around it know nothing about production and should have nothing to do with it. But the development of uh, capitalism lets these roving cavaliers of credit take over the system and destroy it because they have no idea of what they're doing with it. And that's very true. So we have to re regard the private monetary system as being a privilege that is created by the state letting you become a bank. And then the money which is created there should be directed towards productive purposes, not towards speculation, which is where it's all gone, right. certainly in the last 30 or 40 years. So uh, do you believe in public banks? Do you think that's a, a way to improve? Uh, hold, hold, hold. You, you, I, I do want to have some private banks because uh, if you force banks not to speculate on, on, on share prices and bricks and mortar, where their own money creation actually is what drives the asset prices, if you rule that out for them, then you can have banks being better assessors of what is a, a reasonable risk for uh, investment than a bunch of bureaucrats would do. However, you could also use these days the power of the crowd and you could say, we're going to give everybody a certain amount of created money to use on um, uh, you know, crowdfunding and they put the money in and the, the crowd intelligence can also direct where newly created money goes. But leaving it entirely at the behest of the banks and saying, invest in what you like in. That's what's given us the Ponzi scheme we currently live in. Yeah. Thanks for the excellent talk. I really liked your uh, directives in uh, you know, communicating your message. So thank you mm -hmm. for that. Uh, I have two questions. One is just a clarification. So universal carbon credit, if everything has both prices uh, and uh, the rich have money, so why would they ever need 
this uh, carbon credits. Uh, they could just use. Well, then no, if you, you could say, like, you, if you if you let's say the carbon credit just for the sake of it uh, is a, is a, is let's say a ton per day per person, for example, and okay, and then you you and I consume a quarter of a ton per day, so we have three quarters of a ton to sell. And then Understood. Bill Gates consumes ten thousand tons per day. He's got to buy nine thousand nine hundred ninety nine and one quarter ton off the market. Okay, that's that's very clear. So the other question is basically just for my own curiosity. You showed this a, a linear relationship between, uh, let's say, uh, GDP and energy consumption. And yeah, I think that's like global average or something average data. Uh, if you look at the smaller scales and look at the fluctuation trajectories of these things over time on smaller scales, uh, what do the trajectories look like? Do they go on both sides of the curve? That's science too, because if you look at what's happening in like in energy and uh, GDP in America, then the relationship has been declining over time. But that's because America has been outsourcing its production to China. Okay. And then uh, you look in China and India, they've, they've been having a, a higher level of energy consumption. They're building the base energy necessary to convert that energy into GDP. So at the aggregate level, and that's where we should work. This is a global problem. At the aggregate, the link is ridiculously close. I used to say to my students when before the financial crisis came along, and I was warning of it happening because of excessive levels of private debt and the change in debt, which is credit. I used to say that I wouldn't dare make up the numbers I find in the published data. Mm. And the same thing applies here. I would never have dared assert that the correlation between change in energy and change in G GDP was 0.83. That's actually in the data. The, the GDP data comes from the World Bank. Uh, the BP provides the energy data. There's no overlap in the, how the data is gathered. And look at that correlation. And of course, it works both ways. There'll be times when energy rises and causes GDP to rise or fall. And uh, we can see that with COVID. Other times where energy Prices rise and GDP collapses. We can see that back in the the Yom Kippur War and the the OPEC one and OPEC two back in the the seventies. But fundamentally, uh, what you look at, it, you can say quite simply, GDP is energy transformed into useful work. Thank you very much, Steve. That was brilliant. Uh, Chris, are you ready? Yes, indeed. I'm a senior research fellow at UCL, the Institute for Strategy, Resilience, and Security. As is Steve, actually, but he's a distinguished <laughs> research fellow. I'm. I'm just here because of my seniority and getting old. Um, anyway, um, my background is um, in insolvency, fraud investigation, uh, city regulation, became a director of what's now the biggest global energy exchange. I was responsible for the legal design of the UK natural gas futures market, not the physical market in buying and selling CH4 molecules, which is insane, uh, almost as bad as buying and selling electrons. Um, set up a dot com after that, <clears throat> and in 2008, was asked by Lord Reed, uh, well, after 2008, to become a senior research fellow, looking at you could say, um, what if the financial system that caused the crash in 2008 is broken? You can't use the same system to fix it. So what then comes later? And that's what I've been looking at for the last 10 years or so. You could say conducting action research is what I've been doing, as well as providing advice on energy fintech to governments, <clears throat> financial technology. And I'm going to be talking about network societies and an energy standard and explaining what economy 3.0 is all about. So first slide, <clears throat> I'll just rattle through this. Um, in I don't know about the neoclassicals and the capital <clears throat> labor. I mean, that never made any sense to me. Um, I look at it through a sort of reality-based prism as three-dimensional space, which is immaterial. It's uh, 
energy, which is the only hard cost, it's objective, you're talking jewels. And what I think of as intellectual capital, there have been economists who have talked about mental capital, like Friedrich List, for instance, but basically that which qualifies manpower. Keynes talked about unqualified labor, and basically what's multiplying exponentially is what I think of as intellectual value. Now, I have sort of analyzed an evolution of markets from in the beginning, and it's still here everywhere, especially in the developed, undeveloped world, um, basically a people-based economy, which is decentralized but disconnected, where people are physically present in transactions. And it's everywhere, and, and it still exists. And it's the bedrock, it's the dark energy of the economy, really. Um, then what emerged over a period of many hundreds, if not thousands of years, was an intermediated economy where you weren't present in the market personally, but you essentially, your market presence was via middlemen who grew more and more and more sophisticated. And I'll go, come on to that. And the market in which we're evolving, and I sort of set up a dot-com, which I'll touch upon, um, you won't be present personally. You won't be present through a middleman. You will be present, well, you could say personally on the network. And what does that look like? What do the institutions and instruments of that look like? What will be the outcomes? In terms of mega trends, I always like to touch on this. <clears throat> We've touched upon energy intensity, I think. And we are seeing all of the, basically, all of the easy resource has been extracted. And we're talking energy return on energy investment. Not all of it, but the, the energy return on energy invested is in a secular decline. Um, sorry, secular increase. Um, <clears throat> and um, that, that basically means that we're, we're reaching a point at which, um, you know, resources are getting more and more expensive because, you know, all the easy stuff's gone and all, the, all that's left is the hard. And, uh, and in terms of fossil energy, that's, that's what's driving the prices ever higher to, I think, a limit which we now reached. I'll touch upon that. The other trend, capital intensity, is a function of the direct connections of the internet, which um, essentially middlemen are capital intensive in terms of risk. Um, you need a lot of capital to handle the risk or to actually handle the capital investment in major projects, whereas services are capital light. So we're heading into smart, you know, a world of smart services, which are capital light. And um, I'm just a definition here. Financial technology, in my view, is where law, accounting, and communications come together. And I'm going to touch upon that. So <clears throat> let's go to the next. Now, 2008, I call that peak debt um, when it was a credit risk and bank solvency crisis and collapse. Uh, the government's introduced or the Fed introduced dollar QE liquidity into the market just to stop debt deflation. And since then, what we've seen is commodity markets and all markets, in fact, becoming financialized by passive quasi-equity funds, exchange-traded funds, real estate investment funds, you name it. They're all quasi-equity, and they've completely financialized um, the, virtually every market so that the, uh, the real-world future curves have all been replaced, if you like, by yield curves. But I won't go into that. That's a big, big subject in itself. Now what we've reached, 
and it was inevitable. Uh, I call it the point of peak rent. It started with all the excessive real property and capitalized rent, which you call mortgages. Also IP rents, everything, all the, all the stuff that we use, you know, all the services that we use, communications and all the rest. And it's just, you know, it doesn't leave much now uh, for when food prices go up or energy prices go up in a similar shock. And that's what we've had. So energy is now unaffordable other than to producers or the people who actually print the currency in which it's denominated. Um, so what have we got? We've got market risk has reached massive levels. Liquid, it's a market liquidity crisis. And as Professor Michael Hudson says, if debt and rent can't be paid, it won't be paid and it's not going to be paid. That's what's happening, breaking out all over the world now. So this is 11th century financial technology. <clears throat> I love this. It's called a tally stick, and I'll try and point the cursor at it. Um, what it is, is a record. It's a transaction record. It's a, a single entry because if you lose it, it's a bearer instrument. And if you lose it, well, you've got a problem. And basically, they took a stick. They cut notches in it to denote the number or quantity. Uh, they actually put a description of the counterparty. So this is basically a personal relationship. You can't trade these things, although some people think you could. Um, it's A to B, and it's a record. And but the really interesting thing for crypto people is it's encrypted because the grain of the wood can't be actually, you know, it, 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 you, you can't. It's nature's hash. You can't actually forge a tally stick uh, because you have to forge the grain of the wood. So <clears throat> let's move on to the next counterparty identities. Now there were two types of tally. <clears throat> One was a receipt for past not future utility, i.e. e.g. energy use, or it could be, you know, it could be rent, it could be anything. Um, and the other one, so that's a tally as a proof, as a receipt. The other one was a tally as a promise. It's a record of a prepay credit obligation, as I call it, um, to provide future utility. And it requires trust in the person who's promising. Typically where it came from was the, the king, for instance, needed stuff now you were due to pay rent or or um or uh, what would it be um what's the other one um rental tax damn it so obvious um but the king wants stuff now so you would basically prepay at a discount and prepayment at, dis at a discount gave an absolute return and the instrument was also the accounting record and the tally stick would actually be um, uh, returned to the investor, to, to the, to the exchequer. Uh, and that would be the obligation settled. So what you had then, you had as a, as a, as a lawyer, I know in, in, up here in, in, in Edinburgh said, all you need to know about law is this, you've got rights and obligations. Everything else is, is commentary basically. So you, you had here, the asset buyers would receive a bearer title document, e.g. a deed, and the memorandum tally was proof of past value transfer receipt. I mean, uh, proof of payment, what does that remind you of, anybody? You know, coins <clears throat> and um, bitcoins in particular. It's issued by a seller in exchange for value received, identifying buyer and describing value transferred. The receipt has a zero objective intrinsic use value. If I get a Mars bar receipt and I offer it to you, you're not going to give me anything for it. Miles Bar voucher, different question. And this is where we get to. Promises, credits, vouchers, returnable in payment for goods and services, 
it's prepayment. Prepayment is a form of funding that is not debt equity derivatives. It's always been around for thousands of years. It's been forgotten. And the, the very expression rate of return was the rate at which these tokens could be, the uh, stock as it was called, could be returned for cancellation. That's where the expression comes from. It's where tax return comes from. That's where the accounting event was. And the instrument was called stock from stock and counter stock. You know, wooden stump in German would be a stock. It's all in the language. It's all, it was all there to be found, but it's all been forgotten and airbrushed from history. So, and a promise is a relationship, A to B, okay? It's not an object. And that is one of the most important things I've got to say. You know, the money, if you like, credit is a relationship. It's not an object or thing, transactable. It's an assignable relationship. So what were the institutions in those days? Well, it was before corporations came along, you just had associations. Societies, common interest. Companies, common purpose. It, the word comes from, you know, com company from Panos, people who took bread together, bread mates, gathering for a common purpose to, for a venture, like the merchant venturers in Bristol. Colleges, common knowledge. These were all associations predating incorporation. And they came in, they often then came to agreements to share risk, cost, and surplus. So rights and obligations, uh, I think I mentioned that. Sorry, I'm going the wrong way here, aren't I? Okay. Um, so it, examples, I love these two pictures, treasuries. Well, they issued sovereign promises at a discount returnable in payment for taxes or rentals. And you can see the cloth, the exchequer. Well, there's an abacus quality for that. That's where the coins were put. So the exchequer was a shared ledger. It was, a, well, it was a ledger. And if you didn't put bring coins there, you also brought the tally sticks there to the exchequer. And that's what the exchequer was. It was a, it was a ledger. Mints didn't do anything other than quality control and dispute resolution, right? They didn't originate the coins. They basically applied the standards to the coins. It was a quality control service provider relationship. So cantering on to the next generated paradigm, FinTech 2.0, that well, double entry kicked in in the Middle Ages. And this is an example of a bill of exchange. On the left, you've got double entry bookkeeping. And profit and loss came into the equation at that point. Rights and obligations, well, equity, shares in a joint stock company, debt, loan stock. You can, still, you can see how it survives in the language Essentially, the first type of undated obligation was it branched into two, um, which are essentially you know, competing with each other. Derivatives come along later, although they've been around a long time. Fiat currency has been around in one form or another back to the Chinese, but it sort of went mainstream around then. But all of these are exchangeable, tradable objects. They are not relationships. Very different. These are objects being transacted for profit. Institutions, well, <clears throat> a corp. This is where things went wrong. The first corporations were the crown, so you distinguish the person who was the king from the office, because otherwise it was very, it was really hard work to change all the contracts when the king died. So they actually turned, they created this concept of a corporation salt, which was the crown, still exists. And then the city corporation was the first. They started collectivizing commit with collective corporates and that's where it all went wrong okay fighting talk 
But <clears throat> you've got public states, the Habsburg state, municipalities, city corporation was the first. Then we add other types of company come along since. But the problem with the collective is it's virtual. It's not an organic person. It's an inorganic virtual creature. And it acts through real people who actually have a conflict of interest as a fiduciary, principal agent problem, it's called. And these are intermediaries too, which alienate people from each other. They come between us. And it doesn't matter if it's the state or a PLC. We are still alienated from each other by these artificial creations of legal people. And you've got the management capture. You've got the tyranny of the majority, 51, 49% governments and so on. And the concept of trust law is another one. Trustee, beneficiary. Well, trust law was invented by lawyers for lawyers. That's all I need to say on that. Who? Right, now we've reached what I would call FinTech 2.1, which is a sort of middle ground between the one I just described and what's coming next. Todd Boyle, Seattle-based guy, he came up with the concept of shared, he called it web ledgers. He was an accountant. And it's basically a shared, tra shared transaction repository, shared database of accounting, you know, of, in of invoices, basically. My.com in 1998, I raised a quarter of a million pounds to come up with a, a shared market transaction registry because I couldn't believe that, that uh, in that day and age, people still actually use telexes to, to confirm trades. So I raised that money, came up with a system. Everybody wanted to own it, but if anybody owned it, nobody would use it. So, you know, I had a business model problem. And it consisted of a bilateral messaging agreement, shared database, i.e. a shared market ledger. This was the legal innovation, was the associative, is a, a market user agreement, um, a voluntary agreement I heard earlier. You know, it's a, a globally applicable voluntary user agreement, and it worked. And what gave the um, security was unique registration in time order. Blockchains are not unique in time order. They are artificially synchronized with massive, massive use of energy. This wipes the floor with anything that came later. Why am I not a billionaire? Because the exchanges took the idea and made billions out of it, and I got nothing. So there we go. That's what happens. Um, triple entry expression was coined later by a friend of mine called Ian Grigg, uh, crypto, crypto geek Australian of some skill. So... Quick canter here, blockchain, it's just an agreement between machines and devices rather than people. It's a collective machine protocol for encrypted transaction databases. It authenticates electronic transactions, so there is no double spend. They resolved a problem a different way to the way I resolved it eight years before, 10 years before. Um, the problem is the entire database is encrypted and replicated synchronously for every new transaction. And the coin instrument is a proof of past value creation or energy expenditure. Yes, it's got a subjective exchange value, but no, it has no objective utility. And it's a, an object, legal terms, in REM, a anonymous null value object with transactions between named persons. And you have to have a third party involved. And you've always got this conflict of interest or you know, you've, you've always got a conflict of interest with a fiduciary problem. So just an example here of something absolutely stupid. It was Venezuela's Petro 
uh, crypto coin. Now, my position is that acceptability of currency is based on use value over time, utility. Now, there are many different types and qualities of oil, but consumers use gas, oil products, energy services. Only a few refiners use Venezuelan oils. And the Petro as a coin is an in-rem proof object. It's not an in-personam relationship. And they said, oh, it's a proof of payment, basically backed by oil reserves, but can you give it to them and pay for Venezuelan oil? No. Completely useless, complete idiocy, a lot of waste of money. Two minutes, Chris. Oh, my God, I haven't even started. Right, okay. Well, FinTech 3.0, vouchers, rights and obligations, <clears throat> assignable P2P relationships. Uh, you do. Let's go through it. I've, I, I actually came up with a, an agreement called Non-Dominium, um, which is a, a mutual agreement between users, custodians, stewards, and uh, I can't even see what it is uh, down there, and investors. So I've taken a three-party agreement and turned it into a four-party agreement. Google non-dominium and you find two papers of mine at UCL ISRS website. Um, I come on to community treasuries. Non-dominium governance is about aims and principles, resource, social, financial resilience, which maps to environment, social, and governments. Permaculture principles is the same thing. Key point is governance, Co a mixture of cooperation and the key point about a non-dominium agreement is no stakeholder dominates in this architecture. That's the key point. It actually is independent. And I go right through a whole series of different mutual risk cost surplus sharing. I reached Denmark. Now, this one, this is such a wonderful slide. You see on the left, the shape of the Danish grid in 1990, fossil fuel power stations. On the right, measles has broken out. Why? Because what they've been doing is looking actually at heat as a service and provide heat, cooling, power as a service and providing it at least carbon fuel cost, which is the resource resilience principle. So pragmatic solution. That's how they did it. James Watt did this in 1778. He actually provided, he shared the um, fuel savings made from the use of his technology, a smart swap. This is what I did in Lithgow. It's just an example of the thing done in practice. Um, this is where I live. And we were basically looking at taking the hotspots here and making collective uh, initiatives for actually reducing carbon fuel use by using solar power to drive a heat pump, taking waste heat out of the sewers. But we don't sell heat as a commodity. We actually supply heat as a service. And, and so what the Danes basically did, I'm coming to the end here, one more slide after this. What they actually did with their least carbon fuel cost approach was to apply an energy standard. They On the left is what you get from fiat accounting. On the right is what you get with energy accounting. Okay. And that's the, this is what happens with an energy standard. If you apply an energy standard, this is what you get instead of a dollar standard. And here's my Euro thought experiment. That's the last slide. Imagine if they fixed that Euro unit and fixed it to 10, 10 kilowatt hours. Like after the end of the gold standard, everything would change and nothing would change. It's just the ECB can't print energy, okay? And you would see a, a morphing of, uh, of the system as it did after the gold standard. Okay. Sorry. I didn't realize I'd talked for so long at the beginning, but there you go. Not to worry.
Thank you very much. Uh, I believe Sally is first. This was great. I really appreciate this. I particularly am curious in, about your non-denominance domination or however you pronounce that governance, because I oh. think that is central to the whole issue. I mean, this is like goes back to Plato trying to figure out how to get the guardians to stay guardians. So what what kinds of things do you do to help this or how do you manage? I mean, democracy was supposed to be something like that, but it got co-opted over time. Well, you what what we're doing, I'm now a community councillor where I live in Len Let's Go. And the but the community council is not a corporation, it's just a residence association. Um, and what we're going to do is basically come up with mutual agreements and there's nothing anybody can do to stop us, right? That's the beauty of a mutual agreement. It's voluntary, okay? So if we agree to share risk, if we agree to share reward or cost, like farmer's machinery ring, classic case, farmers club together, shared machinery, yeah. shared, a pool, shared pool of contractors, um, you know, uh, shared cost buying, et cetera, but they still competed on quality, Sally. Compete on quality, cooperate on cost. You know, there's all sorts of things you can do. And in my view, once the U.S. catches on to this, there's, there'll be nothing stopping you. Okay, so have you heard of Mondragon and it's... Yeah, I know, I know them well, Sally. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I think there's a scale issue. So what happens when it gets so big that you can't really know each other? I mean, you need to do some of the advantages of efficiency and scale. Absolutely. Well... The whole point about this is to go to local level, network, and then scale. These agreements, voluntary agreements, are what in the trade we call viable systems. They're recursive. Yep. So you, you, don't, you don't get um, hierarchies. This is fighting talk, but this is the work we're doing. We're starting at the, <coughs> the most granular level, um, which is basically four people. So the Equal Care Co-op is a really interesting um, startup over here, which is just beginning to be rolled out. Um, but it's, it's just very, very simple. And the agreements are incredibly simple too. Mutual agreements, Sally, are simple, you know, because, because you know, they say there are as many sumo wrestlers in the US as there are lawyers in Japan because, <laughs> because trust is assumed, you see, you know. Yeah, this is great. I appreciate it. A non-simple, simple question. You say that you don't get hierarchies developing. And what do you do about the whole system of, design around using power to multiply power? Well, you know, I happen to think that the people in power, uh, the steering wheels come, coming off, because what we saw after COVID was an outbreak of mutual aid, despite the local authorities, despite, you know, anything top down. Uh, I think in most uh, Western economies, so if you like, what most, most countries, basically the scum has written, you know, the scum has risen to the top. Most they've become hollowed out because the good people essentially have left to do other things. And and I think we're seeing, you know, in the world of fintech at the moment, there is a massive, massive outpouring of creativity. But in my view, it's been held back by the the property rights, you know, the the absolute property rights of either or. Now, Sally touched upon Plato. My favorite book is Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, right? And that, because I, I think Percy captured it, you know, Amen. <laughs> Percy captured it because he, he, he saw that it's about quality. It's not about quantity and absolutes and the, and the conflicts between, you know, we're talking about non-binary and we're talking about logical states, which are not either or, but are both and 
and neither nor. Those are the four states, right? So we're looking at this with, you know, if you like, different precepts. But the beauty of it is because it's voluntary, we're cool. We can, if, if, the, consistent, if the current system works, we'll work with you. If it doesn't work, try ours, you know, well, ours. Uh, and we just, you know, finding little islands. We made, we made a presentation to the Pacific Islands, a bunch of them, just the other night. And there's huge interest in it because they've been left behind. They've got a choice between, I think, you know, the U.S. to some extent has forgotten them, which is unfortunate. And the Chinese are after the fish, <laughs> you know, and we're saying, well, hang on a minute. Um, we can actually help you organize yourself bottom up. And this is how. Yeah, we still have a world committed to maximizing the rate of growth, uh, people and governments and 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 all the owners of everything. So I'm I'm not sure we've persuaded the the quality uh, approach, but the quality approach is where we're going. Yeah. And the question is how to make the transition. Thank yep. you both. Let's move on to Kerry. Yeah, it's just kind of a clarification or mm. expansion on the idea yet that you're fintech. 2.1 slides talked about yeah. the inherent conflict of a fiduciary um, mm-hmm. blockchain. So no, and I guess you're working to get, or, get around that. So I don't know if you can yeah. kind of say that again about what specifically the conflict is and why it needs to well, be. Well, you've, you've always got a third party <coughs> and it might be trustee beneficiary. It might be the manager. It might be the minor. Um, it might, but there's always somebody who acts to facilitate the transfer between two people, right? I, I own something, you own something, and it has to be passed. To, you know, there's like, I'm passing value to you, you're passing a different value to me, but there's not, how do we transcend that in minute period of time, right? It could be infinitesimal, but there's always a, we call it a settlement delay. You know, there's, there's always a settlement delay. And it, well, well, what it requires is a different approach to ownership rights. What we're looking at, and the key is uh, to take the, trustee beneficiary, if you like, and divide it into two, into the active and the passive. So the role of the custodian is to say, no, that's not going to happen until this instruction comes. Okay. So you and I could both remove our our veto rights successively. You see where this goes? It's a different logical process. But what it requires is a mutual agreement that these are the rules. It's back to the rules. I heard some really good stuff about the rules. What we're talking about here is mutual rules, right? And within that consensus, not a machine consensus, but a people consensus. You'll have heard about smart contracts. The only smart contracts are between people. There are no smart machines, basically. You know, there's so much bullshit talked in this fintech world by people trying to sell you worthless tokens. It's just incredible. So I think there is a massive, massive sea change coming. Financial technology, simple financial technology is going to change the world at a speed that people don't even begin to recognize. Um, you know, and, and once the pen, once so is it, honestly, it is a penny dropping thing. You know, I, I can come on and speed through a presentation and, and, you know, the penny might not drop even after reading, you know, everything I ever wrote, because it's one of these things are, ah, you know, light goes on moments. It's a paradigm shift, but, um, Best way is just to take a sort of, take a project, do it conventionally or try to, and then do it this way. And I, you, you'll see from my writings how we can do it. 
Uh, and if it works my way, this way, our way, then you'll get it because <laughs> you'll, 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 you'll see it happening. You know, I funded a film this way. I've done a fair, fair few prototypes. We're in rollout mode now, you know, property projects, IP projects, energy projects above all. Right. So the conflict is just that the third party wants to extract some value out. Is that it or something? I'm not, I'm not maybe I'm not getting it. We have a word for that. Bingo. That is exactly right. Okay. Right. Yeah. Making sure. okay. <laughs> you got it the first time. And I went all around the houses and telling you, you got it. <laughs> I, I have a quick question. Based on what Steve said about the future of the economy mm. um, and the fact that he thinks the private monetary uh, system will mm. collapse at some point. Mm-hmm. Where would communities um, or people build these networks um, for providing mutual agreements and smart contracts mm. and all these kinds of things if the private monetary system is going to collapse? Well, you do it yourself locally. I wrote a, pay, a paper about, well, it was, it was an article 10 years ago called The Community is the Country, Currency. You can Google it. Um, do you know what the first credit card was? Diners Club. A, a little group of restaurants started giving time to pay to diners. Right, because credit is time to pay. Now there were no banks involved at that time, but not everybody could actually settle, you know, the, the charge because they were charge cards. So banks then started to get involved to provide liquidity to people who needed to to roll to roll it over. So we've got a big fat industry in which banks extract, but there's no reason why we can't come up with a mutual, you know, performance sharing agreement or mutual acceptance. And that's what I wrote about in those articles, completely doable. And it doesn't even, you don't need any regulation for the people involved in it because it's like a walled garden. The only people who need some regulation are the people providing the service. You need a service provider to run it. That's all. Uh, Quality control. It's a bit like a mint, as I said in the presentation. You know, you know what the treasury is? It's us. We are the treasury. That's, and you know, and I think it was Minsky said that anybody can issue money. The difficulty is getting it accepted, which is a great line from a great economist, right? And, and, and I think if we have a mutual agreement says, yes, we will accept each other's credit, but it needs to be transparent, point one, and it needs quality control, point two, we just do it bottom up. And that again, we, if you look up mutual credit and me, my name, you'll find a group of us really going for it with mutual credit bottom up, you know? So it's all systems go at different levels. All right. Thank you very much, Chris. That was fab. Sally, are you ready? I'm going to do sort of an apology in two ways to begin with. First of all, I just, I've been recently diagnosed with Parkinson's, so everything's a bit shaky and I have memory problems. So bear with me, if you will. Um, the second part is that I'm kind of an odd duck here, uh, except for the last uh, discussion with Chris's, which right up my alley. But okay, I have a background in engineering. I started out doing high tech R and D. I worked on <clears throat> the space shuttle and on uh, cruise missiles and early point of sale terminals and early uh, cell phones and digital switches. Then I switched to what I thought was my true love, which was psychology, and became horrified at the state of science and psychology at the time went off looking for something else, ended up in system science, where I discovered nonlinear dynamics and non-equilibrium thermodynamics as a way to understand why classical physics in particular, but classical science in general, 
was completely inadequate and inappropriate for uh, human systems. And so I've spent the rest of my time actually traveling the world, working with different fields, you know, so I've worked with educators and medical doctors and urban planners and finding out how all of them are actually um, experiencing a, a, I'll call it a Copernican flip, which is a shift from one way of organizing the facts of, of life to a different way of organizing the facts of life that is actually more accurate, probably more rigorous. And we're undergoing one of those now. And the shift is really between <clears throat> matter and energy is the basis of all things and from separation to connectedness as the basis of all way things work, basically. So I, this is what I'm going to do here is a really short, simplified version of how I would explain what's going on to uh, social science people as opposed to the, you guys are more of the tech, technical, whether it, well, yeah, very interested in the specific strategy. Anyway, so if you're talking about human systems, the main thing you need to start out with is realizing that we operate mostly on language and metaphor. And then we organize all of these things in, around a, a root metaphor that we then implement and create our, basically, I mean, People heard about the social construction of reality. Well, basically, it's the idea that we come up with a theory of how the world works. And then we have, uh, you know, we decide, like in the Middle Ages, they believe that, you know, this was the plan that the world was built according to God's design. And the earth was at the center of the universe because we were the apple of people's, uh, of God's eye. But they also believe that that illustrated the perfection of God's plan that everybody should stay exactly where God placed them at the beginning. And so there was all of these social rules that went along with it. Anyway, so if, if you're looking at what's going wrong with our current society, it's we have one core uh, interlock, a problem, root cause of all of our interlocking problems, social, economic, political, and environmentally. And they're all Basically, it's a belief and value system, which, and we need a name for this. It's sometimes called cowboy capitalism or neoliberalism or neoclassical. I mean, all of these things are basically a variation on old, what I would call oligarchic capitalism, which is, as Aristotle defined it, governed by the rich for their own advantage. And oligarchy is essentially an ancient cultural system of self-serving power, privilege, exploitation, and empire building. So when people use the word hierarchy, they're usually thinking in terms of an oligarchic hierarchy as opposed to a hierarchy that's simply a matter of it's, you know, more bigger and more efficient on the top and then medium and going down like that, higher branching systems. Anyway, but in an oligarchy, you have, it's based on a master-slave mentality where there's superior and inferior rationalizes some people's right to exploit others. It rigs the system for at least advantage. It's an elite continuum of elite self-service and ignoring harm to others. It uses threat, uh, leverage, fear, rewards, punishments to maintain the elite power and advantage, and it distorts information and blocks reform that doesn't serve the elite interests. So this has been going on for thousands of years, obviously, but it's not the only way that we can possibly organize things. So I have been struggling with the language about all of this. I mean, what I've 
my last PhD was in ostensibly system science, but it was really about the energy non-equilibrium thermodynamics and how that and nonlinear dynamics. Well, let me tell you, anytime I put those two phrases together, people just, they just turn off and tune out. So I've been trying to figure out a different way of articulating it. I'm coming up with the idea of energy system science, which is an umbrella term for disciplines that study the role. Energy forces and flows play in systemic health, growth, development, intelligence, and evolution. And the, not only do these disciplines include nonlinear dynamics or chaos theory and uh, non-equal thermodynamics, but it's also things like ecological economics, panarchy, circular economies. There's just, when you get into it, there's a whole bunch of different disciplines that are basically working on similar kinds of concepts and processes, but just under different names. Okay, well, the root change that that the uh, an energy system approach comes up with is this, that economy is really a society's metabolism. It's a flow network whose collective activity turns energy, information, and resources into all the goods and services, fuel and learning that a society needs to thrive. But the other part of it is that if you integrate information as, you know, Basically, interference patterns create these little blips, which when you add energy, uh, pardon me, fractals, you're able to actually have small things have a significant impact on your, your, on your overall system. So I believe there's, when you integrate intelligence and information into our systems theory, that you end up with a literal understanding of humanity as a collaborative learning species where our main strategy is to pool information, find better ways, and change our behavior rapidly by changing our beliefs. I mean, this is why we talk and don't fight to the theories and why we're, you know, it's, we're on a continuum with other animals who also use information and communicate, but we're definitely, a, that's our main survival strategy. Okay. So if I put all of the pieces of energy system science together, I end up with four main factors uh, or categories of elements in systemic health. Two are cultural factors, collective learning at common cause values. Two are economic factors and their regenerative circulation and resilient fractal structures. Okay, so I'm gonna kind of go through what all of these are. All right, so um, the basic physics is pretty obvious. If you do self-organization theory, what happens is that under pressure, um, sufficient pressure gradient, like if you're doing a, a hurricane or a, uh, a tornado or, or boiling water is my favorite example. You turn up the, the heat and the energy circulates faster and faster and it, by random collisions until it literally can't go any faster. And then you get this growing gradient and inability to proceed, in which case small bubbles begin forming up the side and they one of them eventually trigger, goes to the top, triggers a, loses its heat, triggers a circular movement that goes around and around, which essentially serves to dissipate or move energy faster than it uh, was before. Okay, these are all kinds of flow networks. A system whose existence depends upon the robust cross-scale circulations of critical resources uh, to fuel activity. So in, in all cases in self-organization, smaller bodies align in ways that increase the capacity to work, which is make things move. If you happen to have a self-nourishing one or although called regenerative autocatalytic circulation, 
those increase longevity. So they, they exist long, longer. Um, so when you see it, both well, your metabolism is, is organized. So it's connects to the outside in ways it brings in it's the energy and resources it needs. And then it circulates them throughout its capacity. And that's what fuels activity. Same thing basically with when you see an ecosystem, in the biosphere, it's all circulation and motion and this whole interconnected network that serves to move energy faster and, and in, in no more nourishing ways. Okay. So the far right little chart is about increasing development requires increasing internal circulation. So this is the work of Eric Faison at Harvard and Tufts. He's been working on what he calls cosmic evolution, which is basically the energy flow theory of evolution as growth and development. But he, you know, he, he charts flux density, which is the energy cycling top guy per unit time and unit density in ergs per second to the minus 10 per grams per the minus 10. Anyway, if you do this, you can basically use energy cycling throughout the whole system as a way of essentially ass assessing development because you need that energy in order to support, support the, de the development. Okay. So the social, socioeconomic implications are that where money goes and how it is made is more important than how much is exchanged. So GDP really is only, it's basically equivalent to total system throughput, which is in, in terms of ecosystems. But it's only the volume. It doesn't have anything to do with whether it's constructive or not. It's just, so you, in our case, you have speculative processes, particularly the financial ones. They, are, they up GDP incredibly, but they don't serve any, they're not nourishing the underlying uh, health of the, the system. Um, so that really, if you want to have, where things go is particularly, you need to invest in your organization, it's human capacities and the infrastructure, because they're what do the work and learning. So anyway, the other part of it is that um, in order to optimize circulation and function, basically, because you need to fuel activity, you need to have resilient or fractal structure. <clears throat> so this window of vitality in the beginning, uh, in the middle of here, says, <clears throat> is basically the work of Robert Olanowitz, who's a theoretical ecologist. And it's the, it's the, this is based on study of real life ecosystems, but it also corresponds to the general fractal hierarchies that you see it throughout in all kinds of different uh, systems. So you see trees, lungs, ecosystems, circulatory systems, and even banking systems all have a, a balance of small, medium, and large, or also a balance of re resilience and efficiency because resilience basically increases with um, the, this, the small first and greater flexibility of having large numbers small elements, <clears throat> but it's, you also need large scale uh, or multi-scale organizations also need efficiency. So they need a balance between these small guys and the big guys because both sides are relevant. So what you get is an understanding of why, for instance, <clears throat> uh, you have your circulatory system has small capillaries in order to get um, nourishment down to every cell, and it but it also has medium to get them cross scales into larger organisms, and it has large scale for cross scale transit, 
because the combination optimizes cross-scale set nourishment and circulation throughout the whole system. So <clears throat> basically understanding that there are universal geometries that reflect optimal arrangements over time and the geometric precision of those uh, arrangements, because those are all, high, fractal hierarchies are all uh, power laws. So they have a particular balance of small, medium, and large as they go up. But this will allow us to help, help us assess systemic health by figuring out how well we are towards the you know, optimal balance of big and little. And, but that's also an optimal balance of resilience and efficiency. And if you add fractal, it's actually also a balance of diversity and coherence and flexibility and constraint. Okay, so, but most importantly, this tells you why the endless focus on if optimizing efficiency and size is doomed to failure because eventually you're going to, it's you're doing what you're doing now, which is that you undermine the small scale diversity because the larger the size, the more tendency towards a positive feedback cycle, which is going to concentrate wealth even more. So, <laughs> so, so what? <laughs> um, so, whole economic endeavor, which is focused on GDP growth and maximizing um, efficiency is doomed to failure by its, by the nature of systems and the need for circulation. Go about five minutes, Sally. Oh dear. Okay. So I just went past a whole bunch of stuff. <laughs> anyway, so you, you have similar, another, another law is that is the surface volume law. So at the bigger you get, more the bonds holding of the system together get stretched to a breaking point, which is the surface the ratio of the surface to the volume. Um, and that re results in, well, okay. Anyway, so the bigger you get, the more you have to have small things connected by connective tissue, which is what happens with all these guys. Anyway, hold on. You When you have... Uh, Information becomes central to, to living organisms because that's how we, responding functionally to small energy trails is how we manage to find food, which is how we manage to continue. And so expanding both information and communication throughout is what happens. And that is basically the definition of how you get increasing complexity in living and super living systems. Okay, so oligarchies tend towards instability because they violate the main laws of systemic health. So on the far left, the, this is from Money and Sustainability, one of the books I worked on with Bernard Leotar. And it shows that <clears throat> the amount of money being invested in the real economy is basically microscopic compared to that uh, being invested, it circulated in the speculative economy. Next one is from Roger, Robert Reich, Inequality for All, which says the more you set up big guys concentrate as much as they want, the more instability you're going to get. And the third one, as opposed to taxing it away, which is one of the reasons why there were fewer um, banking failures and crisis after they implemented the New Deal under FDR. Anyway, and the last one is the functioning of the U.S. Uh, congressional system, whereby this is a listing of the likelihood of, of, a, of a policy getting or uh, 
passed, depending upon the, whether it's preferred by elites or the public. And so basically, there's about a 30% chance of getting uh, implemented if, you, if, the, if 80% of the public likes it. <clears throat> but if, the, if, it's, if elites like it, it's basically got a huge percentage of chance of go, uh, being... Anyway, so the large basic result is that oligarchies create a well-stocking vortex that makes, creates economic necrosis because it pulls, uh, it causes the dying off of large swaths of economic tissue, which creates growing pressure for change. So this brings out the, the cyclical struggle to learn. So if you actually look up throughout history and actually prehistory too, um, there's all these ways where we've been struggling to get past uh, oligarchic abuses because they're essentially responsible for the the collapse of complex civilizations, which is that more common than most people realize. We have, however, managed to come up with better ways that so we've implemented, you know, written laws and applied and applied them to to elites. We got civil rights. We've a lot of things are were um, are really ways to minimize the abuse that happens with oligarchies. Um, problem is that oligarchies tend to come back and, it, and they take the uh, new golden theory and they, uh, they turn it into a corrupt form and then just push harder on the same oligarchic way. So instead of living, you know, the Enlightenment was all about trying to do, um, well, actually, medieval started out with trying to do God's design on Earth. And it, in the end, it just became at least aristocratic and church struggling. They created incredible amounts of pressure because of just, you know, malaise. So I think we're on the cusp of a new learning challenge, which is um, why we're, I mean, when you, when you look at a collapse of a complex civilization, it, it has, everything's under, is brittle because and so change it, the crisis, could, the final collapse can be, come from anywhere. It could be economic or financial or social or political or, or environmental. In fact, all of those things have happened before. So I work with a group called the Research Alliance for Regenerative Economic, also the acronym is RARE. And in 2019, we published our top 10 measures of systemic health. They're currently been actually uh, attempted on, um, well, actually one of our guys has worked on industrial flows in, uh, in China. And so looking at cross-scale circulation, where does the money go? How is it invested? How is it used? Whether it's actually going into um, education and infrastructure, the kinds of things that actually improve the productivity of the system and work capacities. Reliable inputs, healthy outputs, that's basically sustainability, which is, should be formatted as risk factors. Um, resilient structure, you can look at the balance of sizes. Do you have just too many big guys and too few little guys? And which, you know, anyway, onward and upward. So what we want to try to do is move towards inclusive prosperity and the economics of belonging, which is sustainable vitality comes from a virtuous circle of well-being, engagement, and common cause circulate robustly, learn collaboratively, distribute fairly, institutionalize common value, cause values. 
So this is one of those things that if you actually curb elites' ability to concentrate wealth by two tax uh, things, this is from, uh, again, it shows that in the height of the Great Depression, they had 4,000 bank failures in the U.S. alone in 1933, and then they implemented the New Deal um, increases in, I mean, what was it, 95% of the in, uh, income was taxed away for elites. And that spawned a 50-year unparalleled prosperity where money was circulating better. So, okay. So saying humanity is a collaborative living species explains why we can build a better world. Energy systems laws of health and development show us how to do so, and its predictive principles and precise measures provide empirical markers to guide our steps. The other way to think about this is that it, this is a way to integrate our societal head, our heads, and power. So I'll stop there. Sorry to be so brief. <laughs> Thank you very much, Sally. That was fascinating. Kerry, please. Uh, thanks, Sally. I, I guess I was waiting for you to define oligarchy and hierarchy. And my thought is when I think of biological systems, would you like it? ant colony, would you, would you be able to use your methods or ideas to say whether they are or are not oligarchic? Or is it just that oligarchy emerges because of the, if you get larger, you will have division of distribution. No, no. I think hierarchies are absolutely necessary for groups beyond a certain size, whether they're, you know, it's cells or ants or anything else. I think you need some kind of ability to centralize and well, I actually, you know, anyway, so I believe they're basically necessary and that's why they exist all over the place because they serve a function. No, the problem is whether or not they are designed to, whether they're, they've got a positive feedback because they're all designed to essentially funnel everything to the top. So hierarchy does not necessarily mean that they are solely a matter of funneling resources to the top and concentrating and maintaining the, it's the ability to do that. So, for instance, uh, in American Indians or clan, Scottish clans have had a clan, clan head, but he's not uh, same thing with Indians, American Indians. You, you don't have them. The guy who's on top isn't necessarily vastly wealthier than, every, than everybody else, and he doesn't have the power to ex extract wealth from or from the people in the the other people. So this is. Oligarchies are a stage of development, which we've been trying to outgrow for millennia. Would you just say oligarchy is a hierarchy in which the proceeds are directed to the top and you could have a hierarchy with no oligarchy in which the proceeds were equally or, distributed? And we have examples of this in history or something like yes, that. Yes, exactly. Okay. okay, thanks. Jesse? About the uh, learning challenges. I've done some studies of the remarkable uh, constancy of growth rates uh, of the world economy over time. And notice that if you look at the shape in detail, you see certain pauses distributed in, in an otherwise constant growth rate that seem to be retooling periods. Would, would you think that's likely to be so, one of the things that people call recessions, but are really part of growth? Oh, interesting. I don't know if I would call them recessions, but what certainly 
the whole business of having basically one pattern of organization, it accelerates things to begin with, but then it reaches basically saturation and it can't go any faster in that particular pattern. Or at which point you, you either, I mean, it can either, the system can either stop growing or it can uh, change to a new pattern, reorganize in a different way, or it could continue on its certain way, in which case it'll essentially collapse. Uh, and it does that by, re particularly if it fails, if it blocks the retooling, as you would call it, the innovations, the new ideas, the diversity that might come up that would indicate a better way, then yes. I'm thinking of retooling as coordination of the whole system with new innovations oh. that are distributed. Still oh. stuff like that. Oh yeah. No, I think the new the innovations almost always begin as not as decentralized. Uh -huh. It's only after time as as the as that, you know, so there's kind of a whole open open space hypothesis. So if you come to the new world and there's all of this and you have the capacity to harness all of these resources, then you're going to grow like crazy for some period of time, but then you're going to saturate, fill up. But they all start small. But what happens is that like in the auto industry or computers or anything else you want to think of, you start with, with a whole bunch of small guys trying this field out or developing this field, and then they grow and then they consolidate and then they, that's pretty traditional. Thanks, Sally. That was really, really good. I can see why you were on just immediately after me. There was method. Oh, to your, yes. <laughs> There's method to your madness, Rachel. That I knew. Absolutely. Um, yeah, it's really, really interesting. Lots of things I like to say. I haven't really got time to do it. But, you know, I mean, for me, um, oligarchy is, you know, derives from the legal structures we use. That, that, that should have come across by now that that's what I believe. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, the, it's the legal forms. So I, I'm looking at agreements, mutual agreements, rather than organizations which are inorganic. You know, for me, fractal. Fractal is like inorganic, okay? And, and, and you know, commodities are sort of inorganic. And there's a guy I know called Trevor Hilder. I put a link to his Web of Wealth site, who's a, um, you know, student of, well, knew him well. Yeah, I worked better, with him. Yeah. Safford Beer, yeah, cybernetics. And his, his work on recursive... Um, you know, uh, organizational design, if you like, is he and I work very closely together, uh, where he works with protocols. I, I work with pros, you know, so that's that. And I just, in this, as an example of a, of a bottom-up system, uh, I'll, I'll give you Switzerland. Most Swiss don't even know the first minister is because they don't give them any power. They only delegate upwards the, the, the functions, which, which require a more strategic level of, you know, of empowerment, most of it's actually decided at the local level with one exception, and that's the central bank, of course, what a surprise, um, you know, so I'm just chucking that into it. And, you know, then uh, the leader, a, a le I would say a leader who is sort of given a mutual respect, he's there because he's the top warrior or the best of his subject, whatever it is, that's delegated sort of liquid democracy, isn't it? And it requires consent, whereas an oligarch, Rules without consent, and I'll stop there. Here, here. <laughs> um, yes, these are, I mean, I'm still struggling with what is the innovations. Actually, I really enjoyed your talk, partly because you were hitting on all the kinds of things that I think we need innovations in, in order to be this next uh, stage. I, you know, 
I don't know what you call it. It, it, in fractals, they call it a heterarchy. A heterarchy is basically a better, a more distributed hierarchy so that it's not just up and control up and down. It's more circulatory and it's more, there's more parallel side to side kinds of things. Um, I, what you can, building from the bottom up or the top down, it, you know, again, it turns out that there's a momentum effect with attractors, which means basically that they co-evolve from the bottom up and the top down. So what, for whatever that that's worth, I think there will be a point. And part of what I would like to do with you is provide you with a relatively common sense way of explaining why these things are necessary. So for me, a lot of our problems step not just from the implementation of the requirements of maximizing profits only for elites and then ownership and all these other kinds of things, the debt-based money, all of these kinds of things are innovations that have been developed in order to concentrate wealth and power more completely. Um, why was I talking about this? Um, anyway, I think those kinds of things are going to need to be rethought and I think we'll start out, I think you need, oh, I know why, what it was. We need to change the paradigm and we need, we need the Copernican level flip. And we need to start talking about this stuff in ways that we can understand each other about why it's relevant to the social. Because frankly, for me, part of the problem with sustainability is that they, they made their case that people were very concerned about the health of the, the planet. But at this point, the health of the planet is now down there for most people below jobs and taking care of your kids and getting out of debt and paying for education and healthcare and owning a home, all those things that are daily, day-to-day -day kinds of things. That's what's creating the, the social pressure now. And so and in a certain sense, I think we're at a stage where the social pressures are reaching a critical point. And we need to have something to offer people that it's relevant to their everyday lives and that speaks to their needs and how do you go about meeting those needs? So it's, it's, a, it's a language change as well as a, and a, and a metaphor change and how, how you say all of these kinds of things together. Yeah, I completely agree with you, Sally. Uh, Henrik, do you have a question? Yeah, it's, um, it's kind of a, a question for everyone in this group because I think it's interesting. I've noticed that I have been sort of uh, traumatized by my working in in the in a big engineering company because that there the problem is of course that if you do calculation in an engineering company someone is actually going to invest a couple of millions in building the thing and if it doesn't work then you have a problem so you so you're very strong on the empiricism part there that it actually has to work but anyway I mean so when when I think about this global or the the um, sustainability problem. I think we should call it a sustainability problem, not just climate change problem. Um, I mean, there, there are some things that, a couple of dimensions that I think have we have to discuss very clearly. One is global versus local. Is it really a problem that can be solved um, locally or is it something there where, where we actually have to work together? And, I mean, this question is, of course, extremely relevant because Honestly, I don't know, someone might be better informed. I'm not sure that it's possible to feed 8 billion people sustainably on planet Earth. So, and then, of course, that gives us, if, if you 
if we do serious like thermodynamic investigation of this and, and realize that it is probably not possible, then we have a very significant and serious redistribution problem. That and this has nothing to do with with money or whatever. It's simply that the food that would be needed cannot be produced anymore. So that's one dimension: global versus local. The other thing is. Um, I've, that I find very interesting is, of course, the trust. I mean, the, the word trust has come up here quite a lot. And and what I'm struggling with is, is it like, is it the good guy problem or the bad guy problem that we have here? I mean, a typical example of a bad guy problem is, of course, gun laws. Um, I mean, 99% or 98% at least of gun owners are, of course, perfectly reasonable people who are not going to shoot anyone. So by, by thinking like that, you say, okay, 98% people are, are reasonable and you don't need gun laws. The problem is, of course, that the two, one, two percent who are not reasonable cause enough problems to, to make gun laws necessary. So these would be like the two dimensions I would want to think about. Like, is it the good guy problem or bad guy problem we have to solve here? Should we focus on the bad guys or good guys or should we... And is it like a local or a global problem we have to work on? Oh, okay. So um, let's see. The good guy and bad guy is it? Is it? Most people are not good guys or bad guys. Most people are doing what their their society tells them they should be doing. Okay. And particularly when you're talking to people, you don't want to put it in good guys and bad guys. So the other part of it is that the pe- reason we have. I mean, particularly in America, there was, okay, there was, a, in terms of guns and good guys and bad guys, um, there, was a, there was a film called Bowling for Columbine by Michael Moore some years yeah. back, which yeah. looked into all the reasons why America has a particular problem with not just guns, with violence of guns. Because any, one of the things they pointed out was that Canadians have more guts per capita at that time they did than America, but they don't have any kind of a uh, a problem with people shooting each other. This has actually, t- uh, so so in terms of psychology, the problem is that we've created a society in which A, there's, you're constantly struggling against being ripped off by one person or another, and you're confronted by lots of thousands and thousands of angry, frustrated people who can't get a job and, and their houses or homes are falling apart because they're in the, you know, they're stressed by bills and healthcare and all these other kinds of things. So we've created people who are likely to be violent because they're completely disconnected from the, the health of the rest of society. They, and that too is, I mean, we have biologists running around saying that evolution is run by selfish genes and that's just nuts, you know, <laughs> or, or, you know, this whole idea that winning is everything. Um, and so we've lost that connection to the common cause, which is one of the things that Chris was talking about. So uh, I, again, so for me, a lot of this is we need to really work hard on how do we articulate this new paradigm and make it a relevant to people who, to people as opposed to just environment per se. I mean, environment is really important, but it's only one of the possible co- causes of collapse. Yeah, actually, Sally, I was going to just uh, try to summarize a thought from Henrik's question, but then Sally brought up another one and per the selfish gene. Now, I think Dawkins even said he didn't like selfish as the word. I think he wanted to use a mortal gene. Um, so I probably yeah, but... disagree with you on the 
interpretation of that, which is sort of the point at the end of my presentation, which was, you know, is there some sort of whatever pushes evolution forward, you know, do we understand it or how much do we need to understand it? Uh, and do we have to, if you, if you sort of accept or accept maybe the wrong word, let's just take as the hypothesis that there's some growth imperative going forward that we humans didn't invent and evolution and natural selection is the language in which we try to explain this for non-human systems, then per Heinrichs uh, and, and made me think of Chris Cook's stuff, if you can create local arrangements, he brought up local versus global. If you can create local arrangements where people do something different than whatever the, the larger economic you know organization is and profit seeking and this or that, how does it do something besides just stay local? So I don't know for Chris's ideas how much I could be linked to him who's physically in a different location that we somehow agree to do something different that we have some mutual, I, I don't, whatever benefit we perceive out of it, we have some mutual benefit, even though we don't physically maybe ever interact, but we can interact in the way we're doing right now and we have some agreement. Uh, local heat management is a sort of obvious physical arrangement, but you know, how would I interact with Chris uh, with some mutual agreement uh, well, that somehow we get a benefit out of it? I don't know. We have the communication and the technology to arrange that to some degree, but I don't know how, what that would be. Well, there's just lots of sociology about the diffusion of innovation. And so it's not, I mean, the other way, the other is the metaphor of the battleship. How do you change it? How do you turn a battleship, which is all this incredible momentum going forward and it's got a 12 foot rudder that you can't really fight against the pressure that is in place. Well, you have this little trim tab, and so it's only what, six inches wide and it's, it's, the pressure, the resistance to that small thing is small enough that it allows you to shift the momentum. So, um, I would say basically that systems, human systems learn all the time and it starts small and it works. It's, it just gets bigger depending upon its ability to actually make a difference for people. Just a short comment to this. Thanks for these for these thoughts and ideas. I mean, I, I guess I'm a bit shell shocked, like sitting in in Sweden here, because what I mean, we, we shouldn't forget that, of course, our political systems work, and they immediately they're very good at doing many things, just not yeah. um, fighting climate change. So, for example, in in Europe now, I mean, I don't know how much you have uh, how informed you about this but i mean the russian attack on ukraine led of course to sweden to make i mean the the largest change in its foreign policy since whatever since ever basically i mean swedish neutrality was like a cornerstone of, of swedish diplomacy <laughs> and everything and suddenly russia attacks ukraine and immediately they apply for membership in the nato which is like without any political discussion and a massive boost in in their defense budget there's no discussion there was no debate about this this was just pure fear mm -hmm. um, causing this to happen germany was basically the same i mean there was nato members but they decided to massively boost defense spending and and cancel their policy of not exporting weapons to to uh countries that are actually at war. Could, could, could I just jump in and give Denmark after 1973 oil shock? They had yep. a very similar moment. I call it an oh shit moment. 
because the, <laughs> the, the price went up from $3 to $12 almost overnight. And yeah. they, they, they were fueling themselves with it. So that's where that policy, very pragmatic policy of, okay, mm -hmm. for any given delivery of energy services, we will minimize oil and gas use. Mm -hmm. And that is the strategy they followed for the next 50 years until, you know, it's been delayed, shall we say, by neoliberal economics and the complete nonsense that is the energy market in Europe now. Mm -hmm. But but that's not that that's going to collapse soon enough. That market is just complete nonsense. Yeah. No, I, I like the term. It, it's kind of the oh shit moment, and and yeah, that yeah. is uh, that. In those yes. cases, governments seem perfectly capable of acting. Well, it's bipartisan, isn't it? it it's one of these things which is existential, and every <laughs> and also a common sense solution. You know. I mean, the, the, the climate, one thing that we've noticed in our discussions internationally is this, that we say, well, it doesn't matter if you're a climate denier or an agnostic or you support you, or you, you view climate science in a particular way, the more expensive carbon fuel gets, the more profit there is in saving it. So that's simple. Exactly. It seems to me as well that um, the communication of these ideas and the communication of threats is absolutely key. And of course, I'm going to say that as the journalist here. Um, Claire also put something in the chat about this uh, at the beginning of the panel. So it seems actually rather obvious as to why a government would jump and change its, you know, 50 years of foreign policy and join NATO um, when Russia invades Ukraine, because Russia has been portrayed as nothing but a threat in the media um, in most countries over the past, you know, few decades and the decades prior to that when it was the Soviet Union as well. And the threat of Russia looms, the threat of all these kinds of things loom. And yet climate, the climate crisis, climate destruction, it seems far more difficult to take responsibility for it because number one, it demands a collective responsibility that war does not. Uh, war is collective within one's own borders and yet there is still a, co a common enemy. Um, and so that sort of necessity of collective responsibility, necessity of collective uh, response, also trust, another word that's come up here, it seems that the deliberate sort of miscommunication around the climate crisis is also engendering our inability to respond to it adequately. Um, and even all of the ideas that have been presented here today just show the depth of the crisis. I mean, everybody has provided research and solutions even that, come, that attack a completely different part of the problem. And everything needs to be implemented all at once as an ecosystem of solutions uh, in order to deal with the poly crisis. And yet, if we are unable to communicate the depths of it uh, simply to either the powerful, whether or not their systems are working for them, TBC, and also the public, um, I suppose this is a question for everybody. How do we how do we get the needle to move now? And I hit you with Russia because I'm an expert on the global gas market, believe it or not. And for me, what's happened between Europe and the US and Russia? when basically they weaponized the, the you know, the, the dollar and the euro were weaponized against Russia. And we saw their currency collapse within days, didn't we? You know, it literally, the, the rates went from 60, I think, to 120 <clears throat> rubles to the, uh, to the dollar <clears throat> and it collapsed. And yet Putin then declared that, well, actually, you're going to have to, you know, deliver, um, you're going to have to pay for the ruble, pay for um, gas in the, in, in the ruble. What happened? It not only it went back over over the rate it was before higher, and I thought to myself, well, what is gas? As I said in the chat, gas is MMBT. It's measured in MMBTUs, right? It is thermal energy. 
in its sort of purest form. And in essence, what they did was they went on to, I call it a thermal gas standard, almost. They didn't do it in the other direction. So they've got problems actually importing anything. But what they've done is by mandating returnability, if you like, by mandating payment for gas in rubles, they took, in my view, that's the most significant monetary event since the gold standard was left. Seriously, I'm absolutely clear about that. How else could that collapse and rebound take place if it were not the case? I put that to you. Yeah, I think that's consistent with my very simplistic take and not studying this in super detail of the Richard Adams stuff, right? Do you have the physical control of the environment? You can dictate social mm -hmm. arrangements. And this is your point, Chris, mm -hmm. that the West tried to impose this constraint mm -hmm. on Russia and Russia said, no, I'm the one that has the physical thing you want. I yeah. get to impose the constraint. Exactly. Like, on you. Right. You're like, right. Yeah. Simply so, put, Kerry, well played. Well put. Yeah. So yeah. that, you know, so is that a, you know, that could be a thing mm. to communicate, right? Mm. That here is this basic idea. You just, we just experienced this idea recently. Mm. Uh, now translate this to larger scopes of perspective, translate mm. this to the decarbonization mm -hmm. and then translate to how economists mm. or, or Steve Keynes perceive the social relations you're able to control and whether mm. that's a basis in physical resources or not. And we would say, yeah. hey, this is why you need a different way of thinking. Because it, mm. this, is, this is how decisions can really get made socially. They're grounded yeah. in physical yeah. reality. Yeah, and, and practical steps, Gary. I mean, we, we, we say the last thing people need is cheaper energy. What they need is the means to pay. So what we advise these far-flung islands, we say, look, keep the price at whatever it is at high price. But what we will do is reduce your cost of producing by bringing in all sorts of technology suited to your environment. And then by issuing energy credit, literally issuing their own energy credits, putting themselves on the energy standard, they give their population the means to pay through what we call an energy dividend. It's a completely different approach, but it has to be tested on islands, you see, because we can't walk into a big country and do it <laughs> for obvious reasons, you know. I think you just sort of answered my other question, how to translate your ideas to local effort to impact globally. But I think that's part of what you just said. If you get islands and another island sees how to do it, I mean, this is not saying anything new, but I'm kind of thinking practically as a person in the United States, how to, how to do that. You know, maybe I just share a car with my closest friends because we know each other and we can agree to share a car instead of all buy a car or something like that. And it's mm -hmm. Things that simple, I guess, but I need yeah. to learn more about your sort of contractual structure. That's what farmers did. Machinery rings, they just clubbed together. I mean, like, for me, the, fu the future is cooperative. Clubs. Yeah. Yeah. clubs yeah. and clubs and clubs and clubs. It's yeah. not cooperative organizations because they're just genetically modified companies, right? Okay, you could educate me on the specific difference, but maybe that's the larger discussion. What I see in place of, you know, referring it to the expletive moment is that, that uh, whole systems change really from, from growth to stability at a certain do or die moment. The message gets passed throughout the system that we've got to change the system. You better stop expanding what you're going to finish and, and finish something. You have to perfect the result. And so that switch from applying the possibilities of the system to perfecting the design of the system is something that every growth system that survives goes through. And we're a growth system. And we're headed for not surviving. And if there's a whole system recognition of the problem, we'll probably survive. 
But it, it's also possible that we have so many blinders on, there, there will be very large portions of the public that won't notice uh, and just still stay in conflict mode. Can we shift to caring for the system we built as a whole? Thank you, Jesse. Everyone, thank you so much for your time today. Uh, this was so fascinating, as I said before, how everybody has come at it, the, a different part of the problem from different angles, showing just the variety and diversity of thoughts we need, solutions we need, uh, and how much in shit we really are <laughs> when dealing with this poly crisis. Uh, a huge thank you to Carrie, Henrik, Yi, Steve, Chris, and Sally for your phenomenal presentations. They were absolutely fascinating. Having interviewed all of you, I still learned something new listening to you again. And a big thank you as well to everyone who's been listening and asking questions and getting involved in this debate. This was the very first Planet Critical Roundtable. There will definitely be another one. Uh, and yes, thank you all for your time. If you liked this episode, leave a review and share it far and wide. If you loved it, support the project with a paid subscription at planetcritical.com. As always, thank you to the Planet Critical community who support the show and make all of this work possible. Thank you all for listening. See you next week.